Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Doof Media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this is my big old titan buddy, Scott Daly. Consolidate? Uh, nah. Oh. Fine. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of never saying you're sorry, tragically destroyed cape files, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week on the show, we conclude Arc 17 Sundown with Chapter 17.Z and begin Arc 18 Radiation with Chapters 18.1. First, Shardbageddon continues as we watch Victor, Hunter, Moose, Prancer, and Scenario succumb to the pull of Titandom. And then Vicky deals with the consequences of her Arc 17 actions. Matt, what do you think about these two chapters? Well, like you pointed out, some real tragedies with the loss of those files. Um, <laughs> That's the most important part, it's the files. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those great weeks where the interlude chapter is just a buffet of, uh, I mean, honestly, we're probably going to do that thing where we talk about the interlude for like an hour and a half, and then we have to like hurry to catch up and 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 probably honestly are going to like uh undersell uh 18.1 simply because 17.z is is going to require such a deep dive because it's so it's got it's it's like three different excellent short stories you know what i mean yeah oh absolutely I i love that chapter so much I do too. I do too i think i still maybe like the major malfunction interludes a little bit better but uh z did not disappoint I think as as a unit, uh, X, Y, and Z together uh, are. I, I, I think I, at this point, I need to stop saying like my new favorite part of the story because it's lost all meaning. Um, but I really, really like this trio of uh, of interludes quite a yeah, lot. Yeah, so. for sure. My new favorite part of the story is the newest part. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> attitude. All right. <laughs> um, I don't think we have any announcements today. It's not this week. It's a pretty low-key week. Just some good, good chapters. Yep. So let's get on into 17.Z, final chapter, final interlude of Arc 17. And we begin the interlude of jerks, the ones who (laughs) kind of suck, with Eric. Yay! Eric watches the disaster spread in the form of black cracks through space-time, buildings falling into blackness surrounding the new toxic titan. Only moments have passed since we left Citrine and Victoria are pretty much right where we left them, actually. Mm-hmm. And the first part of this chapter is very much focused on making us feel what what's happening. Uh, the descriptions convey both a strong visual impression and also a very heavy tone. I'm just going to quote this chunk of text. Um, the main screen switched to each show half of an overhead view, satellite camera, the epicenter of the attack, the clouds of smoke from the resulting destruction, and those cracks that spread out like that from a tap on a, of a hammer on a window pane, except in three dimensions, not two. A city in black and white with a shadow of gold due to the prevalence of the solar windows reflecting tinted light down onto snow. Ah, oh, it's beautiful, right? 
Yeah. I mean, it's beautiful and it's and how horrifying it is. I, I, I agree with you that the descriptions in this first part of the chapter are excellent. Um, this is what when I learned that there was a, a 17 dot Z, my immediate thought was, oh, we're going to get to see through multiple perspectives what this thing looks like, what the actual event looks like. And I was like, I'm very excited for what kind of crazy language we get here. And it does not disappoint because not only what you pulled out, but the first lines of the chapter are, it looked like lightning striking in slow motion, but it was black with distortions here and there around the edges, blurring, fisheye, telescoping, and hyper clarity. When this lightning struck, it remained where it was. Like, I love that blurring, fisheye, telescoping, hyper clarity. Those are all different distortion effects right like they're not it's not the same kind of distortion for each of them so it's just like they're all all these things are happening at the same time and it really sells to me the otherworldliness of this whole thing like uh, cap that off with the lightning staying where it is um like just imagine lightning striking and then it just it's there now um, yeah. it's just this really powerful image that sticks with you i i so and i've said this before but i sometimes have trouble visualizing stuff like this like extra dimensional like very abstract stuff like this in in the novels i read especially sometimes in these books but this paragraph i don't know like it just sold the image to me and i really saw it i really got it yeah, I think I think Weldo gives us a good amount of time, a good amount of description here. And something that's hard to characterize is is the way that it just fe- it has this heavy pall of doom over it all. And you know, I, I tried to pr- pull out that paragraph that I that I read because I felt like that kind of brought that feeling of like foreboding with it. But you ask me to point out, okay, what what word choices? bring along that feeling i don't really know i don't really know why it works that way exactly um but it it definitely has that effect on me anyway yeah and i mean i love the the part that you point out with like the it it goes back to the very start of the book right with this this tinted gold uh, that that is surrounding by the city we have black and white with the shadow of gold and you didn't pull it out here but the next sentence from that one that you pulled out is the gold shadow is just turning into shadow shadow Mm -hmm. so like even even this this image of gold morning that was with us from the very beginning of the story has now been replaced by a new thing it's like gold morning is of the past this is the new disaster now and we've kind of replaced that with this one um and it really sells this idea that this is this is it this is this is Mm -hmm. an event that could end up being just as big and just as destructive and just as traumatic as gold morning was yeah yeah true um so as, as we move on i think some of eric's internal commentary is is pretty interesting like at at first we get to see the color and number coded bubbles indicating where the different hero teams are and we also get the names of like 50 billion hero teams that we've never heard of before yeah i I think one of the things that this book has consistently done for a lot of its runtime is to keep our perspective our point of view character pretty close to the ground right even when victoria was involved in the big things she's not a member of the wardens she's not in a leadership position where she would be getting like a, a, the full scope of the world um not a big picture scope and this interlude and this part specifically through eric is we're, we're getting to see a real hint of the full scope of everything right like all these teams some of which we've heard of because victoria has interacted with them in the past some of which we haven't i really like this part where um he's talking about just 
the struggle of it all. The wardens led from the front lines because they had to. The people who knew how heroes worked and how how villains thought were the same types of people who wanted to be in the thick of things, helping. Most of the time, it worked. The appearance of Gimmel and the emergence of a city with all of its doorways to other worlds was a dozen diplomatic crises in one. Add in the villains banding together, villains from other worlds who had been stranded here who needed to be broken up, and a massive population of vulnerable displaced people, and the wardens had their handful. So, like, in this very early part, we're getting this clear picture of, I think, what the wardens have been struggling with from the beginning of the book. And I don't think we've ever seen it as clearly as we do now through Eric's eyes. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't even noticed it until just now. Um, really, the, the the only other POV that I can think of that is close to the warden's leadership would be Valkyrie. And the whole point of her chapter is that she doesn't really want to be a leader. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, so so this is really, it's sort of like how in Late Worm we started getting more and more of these these uh, windows into like the cauldron leadership and so forth. I feel like that's the part of the story we're in. Of course, Eric is not really leadership, but he's he's... Like you said, he's in the room, right? He's been in the right. room. He understands how this stuff works. Yeah, I mean, he's been around for, they say, a month, which I don't, like, in this world, I, I feel like a, sh- a lot of shit's happened in the past month that he would yeah. be have purview to. And I, I mean, this is really interesting, too, because I think, you know, a lot of what we're going to be talking about through these Eric sections is getting a glimpse into who he is as a person, and we see some not-so-great parts of his personality, but we also see things like this. I think I think there's a level of respect he has for the wardens yeah uh, here right right like 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 he he recognizes the the severity and uh the difficulty of what they've been trying to do the last two years and he says they made it this far they made it for two years and it's like even that like it's two years doesn't feel like anything it feels like a short amount of time but considering the amount of things they had stacked up against them they've made it this far they made it two years um so, yeah, I, mean, I think we're seeing he does have a respect for this organization on some level. Yeah, I mean, he definitely sees himself as being on Team Warden, right? Like he's, yeah. he's he, he he'd probably tell you he is one of the wardens, you know, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he'd probably phrase it that way. Although I think it is interesting that he says they've made it this far, right? Like that's true. Yeah, he, he never says the wardens led from the front lines because we had to. I mean, I think when he's saying the wardens here, he's specifically talking about the capes. Mm-hmm. And I think he does. He does have a certain level of respect for those warden capes. Um, so he is not like an anti parahuman person, right? I think that was one of the things we thought maybe he was. He had like this secret pair human resentment i don't think he does um i think he has a a very specific point of view on the pair human's place in the world that that butts heads with people like victoria but i don't think he hates capes um in fact i think it's kind of the opposite we don't see any evidence from his point of view that he resents capes or anything like yeah, that yeah um yeah I, I think that's true so basically one of, the, one of the first things that he does in this chapter is he offers to let Armstrong be in charge and Armstrong accepts. Yeah, I, I think this is really, uh, you know, piggybacking off what we were just talking about here. Um, we see one of the things we thought about is like, is Eric like this power hungry guy that's like grasping for power because he feels it's owed to him or he wants it or anything. And in this moment, he he defers to someone else. He defers to someone else's leadership. And of course, that person is... Uh, a non-cape, which I think is perfectly in line with his idea on what the power structure should look like, right? He thinks that there should be, he he likes the PRT model, he thinks that there should be a non-cape, a human being in charge of of 
this part of the organization. And it's like, oh, it's Armstrong. And he is much better equipped to deal with the crisis we're dealing with right now. So uh, you do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, an uncharitable read of this would be that he's punting responsibility for the mess on someone else because he doesn't want to deal with it. But I don't I don't know if that's it. Well, there's, uh, kind I, there's of, nothing we see there that I think that's it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like uh, the, the way I look at it is, is it's like, is it is it cowardly or is it just realistic to recognize that you're out of your depth and hand over the reins to someone who you at least suspect is going to have a better handle than you. Sure. Sure. I I mean, I definitely think that there is a part of Eric that, uh, over inflates his his importance in this organization. Mm -hmm. But I do think it is important that he does still recognize the people that could handle things better than him. And I think this is probably also a result of his awareness on some level that he bungled, the whole Victoria thing. I think we see that echoed a few times here where he's like aware of how he, he like, he lost his cool. He screwed up. Um, I think very later in the chapter, we'll see this idea that with scenario gone, like there's nobody that's going to have his back. Yeah. Um, so he is, he is aware that he screwed up yeah. on some level. He's, he's aware that, that he's done something that would require that someone have his back. <laughs> right, yeah. right. 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 Um, j- just this, uh, I mean, little, little beat here where, he kind of looks over at Victoria for a second and he, he notes her unkept hair uh, because of the wretch's poor braiding skills. Of course, he doesn't know that's why. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting. I, I read his reaction as being frightened of her, um, but but also keeping it together. I don't know if you read it the same way, though. Yeah, I, I uh, that's interesting. I didn't read it that same way. Like, I, I do admit that there's probably some fear involved on some level here. I mean, she did like scarily judo chop him but i saw like his heart rate quickening as more connected to his anger and annoyance at her than necessarily fear um these two characters do not like each other at all and just seeing him (laughs) reminds him of how annoyed he is with her but but i mean regardless of which interpretation it is i think the important part is here that he recognizes that this is not the time for this he has to get a handle on this uh there's more important shit to deal with yeah, pretty much throughout this whole chapter, he seems to just avoid speaking to her directly. Um, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I do, I do think that's interesting that he does notice that this really minute detail about her hair and mm-hmm. like the the not being as braided well. You know, like one of the first things that happened in our interaction with Eric is this this moment where he like looks her up and down, um, and she interpret this as as leering at her and it might still have been that um but he also seems like the type of person at least from this this beat that is very observant about people i mean he recognizes like that like the fact that bits of her hair aren't quite as tight in the braid as they should he recognizes this disheveled nature in her Mm. um i don't know i i think like he is a pretty observant person yeah sure well well back back when that happened i think we pointed out that she also looks him up and down um, but because we're in her head, we see that she is literally just taking in his outfit and his style choices and his, you know, l- l- the little tiny bits of data like a, like a detective might take in when they look right. at it. Like a, and and what, what's funny is he, he has this tick where he kind of analyzes people by their appearance. He's clearly a huge cape nerd. Um, I, I feel like there are some actual textual parallels between Eric and Victoria. Yeah, and, and um, that is not to say that he they're the same person and that that his negative attributes are shared 
by her. Right. But well, I, I think I think there are definitely parts of them that are similar to each other. I think I think usually the point of, of making parallels between characters is to point out differences between characters too. Yeah, so I think you're right. So yeah, they're not it's not like Eric is like, oh, this is what Victoria would be if she were a man and not a cape. Like right. no, I don't that's that's not I don't think that's what Eric is at all. No, um, no yeah. But cert, certain maybe um, bits of Victoria's disposition are being reflected here. Mm-hmm. And I so do anyway. think we will see that explicitly here in a minute. Yeah. Um, so just <laughs> I, I I love and hate this moment where um, I, I think I, I think Eric, I don't remember who says it. Eric or Armstrong says something along the lines of like we we stopped them last time, and Citrine says technically we did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and Eric thinks fuck you, which and because even in that moment, like like we're just like, come on, Citrine, you need to you need to go back to those textbooks that Accord right. gave you on how to talk to humans. Yeah, like it, it is. Human. <laughs> it is it is uh, pedantic in like the the worst possible moment, right? Like the world is ending around them, and it's like, okay, you're technically right, but so what? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's super divisive, and and yeah. Especially after this moment we just had where everyone was kind of scared of, of Citrine and Victoria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do think this is like very consistent background characterization for Citrine, though, as this cape who's just kind of fucking done with people, right? <laughs> yeah. Like her, the, the anti-parahuman people killed her husband. Um, and, and we saw kind of last week that she was just like, she's just fucking done with them. She's so yeah. frustrated by them. And I like we didn't talk about this last week, but Citrine did serve a purpose in that victoria eric argument there like she agreed with victoria's points and then took them a bit further and i think what that did was kind of allow victoria to come back from the ledge a bit uh because victoria does not like citrine and there's a moment in those chapters last week where she's like oh fuck citrine's agreeing with me maybe i fucked up a little bit and she kind of like says okay well maybe not that far citrine because like citrine has never or victoria has never liked citrine right like like from the moment first moment where she felt like she had to interact with her and had to make a deal with her she's not liked her she's not trusted her um and now this person is agreeing with her and she doesn't know how she feels about that yeah citrine is doing the uh the worst person you know just made a great point thing <laughs> right 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 uh but i think it really it allows you to reframe that point a little bit and i think i think we see the continuation of that here where um victoria kind of shuts down citrine's pedantry right where she's just mm-hmm. like it does we nobody did anything like we're, yeah. we're having a pissing contest over who did what and victoria is just like nobody interrupted anything mm-hmm. whoever it was we didn't interrupt it we just delayed it um and i think that is really interesting like she's she's doesn't want citrine on her side she doesn't necessarily want to be on citrine's side and she's not going to deal with that um I, yeah. I i just like i just like her i just like her citrine's role in this kind of back and forth yeah. Right. I mean, you can just see Citrine it like she seems poised, but I feel like she's actually barely keeping it together um, mm-hmm. on the inside, like just because we, we know her. Um, yeah. 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 So, yeah, uh, Victoria explains that she thinks that what we're seeing is the shards straggling toward their own uh, attempt to complete the cycle, um, which which is interesting because like we, we know she's kind of right, but also probably kind of wrong, at least because I think Dauntless and Fume Hood and maybe Contessa are not trying to destroy the world. Yeah. At least we think, um, yeah. I, I like that there is the, the, the book takes time to kind of establish ambiguity there though, because very early in this chapter, we see fume hood, the fume hood Titan moving around. And Eric is thinking about like, was she trying to hold the building up or was she trying to destroy it? And mm-hmm. he's not sure. And there, so there's some ambiguity with the characters where they don't 
know what's going on here. And as readers, I think, and, and I don't know, this read could be wrong, but I think I'm pretty confident in the fact that at least Dauntless and Fumehood are indeed trying to do something to, to hold things together and not actively destroy it. They did mention that Contessa was uh, accepting of the, the, the help that Dauntless asked for, asked for, or I think so. So maybe all three of them, I don't know. But I just think it's interesting because that's, that's seemingly setting us up for some, some dramatic, dramatic irony there. And I'm wondering how that's going to pay off a little bit later. Yeah, I interpret it the same way you do. I mean, mainly, I think like my kind of narrative anchor here is that I can't really imagine that Dauntless would do anything to hurt the world as long as his son is still out there somewhere. Sure, sure, sure. Um, he is the best dad. He's the best dad. And, 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 and within that interlude, it really did seem like Dauntless did have at least one hand on the steering wheel still. And we have no reason to believe something's changed. I mean, I guess Simmer yeah. has been hanging around, but yeah, yeah. But, like I mean, you said, her the, her her motivations are so mysterious that yeah. we can't really conclude anything exclusively on that. True, so. true. Like you said, there's room for misdirects, though. I am going to try to be positive and say that there's going to be a handful of titans that are going to try to be holding this whole messy universe up, and um, and I'm going to say that those two for sure. Contessa, I'm like 50-50 on. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel the same. Speaking of Contessa, um, she is made out of black stone wolves and covered in amber eyes everywhere except where eyes should be. <laughs> um, Scott, do we have anything smart to say about what Contana man- yeah, Contessa manifests as? Well, I think the eyes are just like perfect as a, like a, a visual interpretation of her power, right? She mm-hmm. sees all um, with the multiple eyes. I mean, whenever you start talking about three-headed canines um <laughs> the immediate thought to go to is cerberus right mm-hmm. and i mean this is interesting like if, if i had to stretch on this what i would say was that uh cerberus is the guardian of the underworld we can substitute underworld for shard space and then we could say that contessa's current role in this whole thing is guardian of shard space and the, the important part about cerberus is cerberus was not like stopping people from getting into the underworld, Cerberus's role was to prevent people from getting out. So if we're going along with our, yes, Contessa is absolutely helping our good Titans, um, we could say that her role here is to specifically to prevent Shard World itself or things from Shard World from coming into our world more. And that would be the guardian of the Shard World bit. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's just a guess. Yeah, it could just be because, you know, wolves look cool. Yeah, I mean, it could. I think, didn't you say that there was some some lines early in Contessa's backstory where wolves were like an important symbol to the group of people, the tribe she lived in or whatever? Yeah, I think some people in our Discord were pulling out some quotes of that effect. Um, so I think I think that could also be it. But but I think you're right that anytime it's three, three heads, um, it's suggestive of Cerberus. I mean, I, I like your line of thought anyway. Yeah. It's I, such specific imagery that, yeah. um, and I, I think, I think the background, cause I think Wildbo doesn't always just do things. He has stuff set up for it. So I, I absolutely think he would allow the seed of, yes, this was a, a, an image that was important to their culture. Also, this is the metaphorical meaning I'm going for here. So yeah. cool. I think, it, I think it can absolutely be both of those. Sounds good. So now we cut over to another point of view character and we, well, we begin to understand that this is going to be one of those unusual interludes where we're cutting between different characters. Although in this particular case, we actually cut back to Eric repeatedly. Um, So um, we don't find out that this, in this particular bit, we don't find out that it's Scribe 
until she's given at least two heavy paragraphs of her backstory. Um, or at least until Armager says, uh, were they uh, Nazis? And then we kind of <laughs> guess, um, especially after Scribe replies with some bullshit. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about the structure for a little bit because it is very specific. We have this kind of start on Eric, then new Titan comes, cut to different scene in which we will find the birthing of that Titan, cut back to Eric, and we'll go back and forth. And as you kind of hinted towards the very beginning of the show, the point of view characters we get here are often characters that aren't the best people, um, and more specifically are people in which Victoria has historically not gotten along with very well. Um, and that, I think that is really interesting because we are exploring these characters on a, a much more deep level through this point of view. But the thing, I mean, I, I think the, the, the really interesting thing about the characters who are chosen for this is like, these are all people, these are all jerkwads who are trying to be good. Sure. E- even, even Marquis is, he's, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say he's a hero, but he's trying to help his daughter. He's he's kind of trying to make up for things that he feels like he has has done wrong. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree. So so that's what's interesting to me about it is like they're they're certainly like they're not the worst. They're not good either. They're all people who are in a rough spot. And so, but and, and that's not just a coincidence either. They're all people who you who you think are on the borderline of going Titan ultimately, because what we realize is that the people who go Titan are the ones who are at a very low point. Yeah. uh, That, that becomes evident pretty quick. And and one of the things I, I do enjoy about this is the way wild bow is structured. It is, it is not until the very last little mini scene that the person whose head we're in is one of the people that goes Titan, right? It's not until Moose at the very end of the mm-hmm. chapter that we are actually in the heads of someone and we're kind of misled that way, right? Like yeah. we, we go to Scribe and I think as we'll talk about here in a minute, the, the early part of this section certainly seems to be setting up the fact that, oh, it's going to be Scribe, it's going to be Scribe, and then it's not. Uh, then we go over to Marquis and there's a little bit of misdirect where, where I think for a fraction of a second, the book wants you to think maybe it's Amy in the way Marquis is talking. And then we quickly learn it's not. And then we go to Moose and see it's Prancer and we're like, oh, bummer. And then the book goes, ah, but it's him too. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I just, that's a very clever structural element. Like it kind of manipulates you intentionally in different ways uh, to kind of keep you guessing on what's going on and who's it going to be. But also, yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right that this is very, this is very purposeful in who we picked, which point of view characters were from, what that says about the characters that are going Titan versus the characters that are not. Like, I think as we go through the scribe Victor stuff, it matters that Victor is the one that trigger, whatever we want to call it, Titans and scribe is the one that doesn't. Um, that is, it's significant and that's saying something. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and yeah, like you were pointing out about the kind of the large scale structure, it is doing the uh, establish, um, reinforce, subvert, sure. three beat structure yeah. um, in, in, in a bit of a complex way, but I think that is there. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So yeah, um, it's it's interesting that we finally get Rune's explanation for why she doesn't feel the need to apologize because, yeah. you know, we've seen Vicky's reasoning on this specific issue, her assumptions, her thought process, and now we're seeing something like the ground truth of it. And, um, I mean, I really do think that this this justification by Scribe is worth talking about because a really central theme of this story centers around 
second chances, forgiveness, the amnesty, and, and regrets. And that that is really kind of uh, underlined very heavily in this scribe uh, uh, segment. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the most important thing we see here is a person who um, certainly does regret some of the earlier choices she made. Um, the The interesting part is the unwillingness to apologize, right? Like, I am the type of person who generally thinks that, hey, you fuck up, you should acknowledge that in some sort of public way. You should apologize for it. Um, Scribe doesn't want to play that game. And that is that it is that choice right there that has kind of turned Vicky's ire against her. Mm-hmm. Um, this this doubt of sincerity because of no public ad- admission of guilt there. Um, and I, I do think it's just like it's just very interesting to reflect on how different people approach these concepts in different ways. Right. Because to Scribe, the concept of the amnesty was forgiveness. She's mm-hmm. like, well, we were forgiven. Like, why should I have to do anything else? We were forgiven. But not everyone looks at it that way. Some people like Victoria look at it as like broad, high level, like structural, uh, political, legal forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that everyone's just cool with you now. Um, and everyone is bringing different ideas of these concepts to bear. And that ends up with conflict around those central ideas. I mean, just having been in this community and participated in so many conversations about the different characters in the story, it is clear to me that no two people have exactly the same idea of what forgiveness or or even what an apology means. Right. So it's it's very. I, I think it's it is really interesting and really kind of cool actually that the story is showing this character who it's it's not actually that she's not at all remorseful or trying to turn a new leaf. It's that she just doesn't like being told what to do right and and kind of resents the idea that she could she needs to like kowtow and 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 mouth certain words for people to accept her she's like oh shouldn't i just be able to be on the good side and help the good guys and that should and and that should be it yeah Um, and and look i don't think that's like an admirable quality like i i think i think you should you should be willing to people should be willing more willing to admit their faults mm -hmm. but it is understandable. And I think it, it, it makes her a much more complicated, nuanced character than Victoria saw her as like, mm-hmm. I, I love this because like this, what's going on with scribe beat has gone on from almost the beginning of the story, right? Yeah. Like the, the former empire 88 people leading through to the specific mistrust of scribe. And now here we're finally seeing her as a person that, yeah, she's, she's a bit of a dick. She's abrasive. Um, I, th- I think she, doesn't she call herself recalcitrant later? Yeah, she does call um, herself recalcitrant. Yeah. So, I mean, like acknowledging of her annoyance, but it's not that she's still like, yeah, Nazism is good. <laughs> Racism is good. I still believe these things for sure. She's not that person either. Yeah, it, it's so to be to be clear, this is not the part of the book where we get the 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 shocking insight into scribe's psyche and we realize oh she's not at all what we thought she's she's actually great right, and no, we just yeah. we just had a completely wrong and understanding of who she was right it's more like oh she's complicated right right which is really not shocking because that is wild Bo's whole thing is humans are complicated ambiguous and difficult to summarize in 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 a succinct way basically sure Um, absolutely and and that's i mean i think that's what's going on with each of the characters in this in this interlude including eric actually yeah i agree with you i totally agree 
Yeah. So there, there's, I think there's meant to be some question as to whether we're meant to just take scribes words at face value. Um, although I, I lean toward a strong, mostly, uh, like, like when she says she wants to keep the good parts of her old way of thinking and discard the racist parts. I don't really think, I don't really think, uh, there's any reason that she'd be lying because, She's already admitting to something that a lot of people would have a problem with. So, (laughs) so, so, so that, that'd be a kind of a silly lie. Like she still refuses to actually apologize for it, but, but she is saying like, I don't endorse the racism anymore. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, my former Nazi organization was not all bad is a, is a take. Uh Um, But I mean, I think I think there's some like fundamental honesty to that coming from a like that can only come from a person that's gotten out of it. To me, it's kind of like the admission that like, hey, heroin makes you feel really fucking good. And that's why people do it like there would like I think what she says here is that like there is of course there are good parts about this. If there weren't, people wouldn't join it. Right. Like the people wouldn't get sucked up into this bullshit. And so like she's focusing on the community aspects of it. It's not good optics, certainly. Like being quoted as Nazi organization, not all bad, is not something you want a headline to be said with your name attached to it, right? But I do think there's a certain level of honest, like, reflection going on here. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I've, I think I've heard the same line from real life, mem- like, ex members of cults. Right. Yeah. Where they'll basically say, like, yeah, I mean, I. I left the cult and I left my whole family behind and that's horribly painful. Right. And, and, and that sucks and unambiguously sucks, but I can't be part of the cult anymore. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she does, she does admit that like, she doesn't come right out and say it because I think scribe is a very guarded person, but she's like, it's, it seems very much that her parents got indoctrinated into it and then just brought her along Mm -hmm. and she got attention. And then eventually you just start, prescribing to the racist shit because you're around it all the time um yeah right i mean we have to remember that uh up to a certain point our our good good boy um um theo was probably pretty similar to her yeah maybe not as quite as far but I, i think basically the only difference was that she triggered younger and so they really started putting the pressure on her I mean, they definitely walk different paths. I'm not yeah. saying they're, I'm not saying, I think they're very different people constitutionally in addition to having walked different paths. So I'm not trying to say Theo and Scribe were the same. Um, <laughs> You're going to get some thriving. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah. This is, this, uh, can, can we just say this chapter is a fucking minefield? It certainly um, is. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, it, it's, it's all, it, it's all pushing us to, see her as being more human than than we certainly were when we were just getting her from Victoria's point of view. Absolutely. I uh, I mean little even little details like the fact that she uses words like phimotic and recalcitrant casually. Yeah. Um so anyway, uh, Victor comes and checks in on her and uh I'm going to be honest, uh you should go back and reread this bit because this conversation is way more heartbreaking to read the second time. Yeah. Um yeah. because like she says Victor is so good at sounding precise confident uh that it's easy to just completely miss his attempt to reach out to her for help here which is really quite evident uh if you just look at his words yeah i i I totally agree with you and i think this is one of those things that i wonder to myself like how hard is this from a writer's perspective to set up where it reads one way the first time and then completely different the second time and it's 
obvious. Like if you go back and look at it when he's going through and talking about how like he's challenging her on this fact that she feels she's fine. He says, you're always fine. You were fine when Coyle outed us. You were fine when Kaiser died. You were fine when you were injured. You were fine when we went back to the clans and the new leadership treated us like dirt and blamed us for what happened in Empire 88. And that's perfect and wonderful. But then when you know the conclusion of this whole thing, you know when what's going on with Victor, you read that and you're like, oh, wait, everything he says there is us. When Coyle outed us, when we went back to the clans and they treated us like dirt and blamed us like he is as much a part of these terrible, terrible events as she is. And it's just perfect, like layered um, doublespeak. And I really like it. I really like it. But he's using this poker face and she's interpreting it as like uh, he just wants to be smug or something yeah and uh, he's talking about the importance of reaching out when you're not doing well and then a little bit later admits that he himself is the one reaching out it is really just like absolutely tragic you you see like how much he's he's extending this this olive branch trying to get her to grab the other side and she just rejects him yeah right she it's not like she's being cruel to reject him. She just doesn't get it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, that to me is what's tragic. Actually, if she understood that's what was happening, she would accept it. That's that's, that's what's like extra sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, in case you doubt that the purpose of including rune interlude is to confront the idea of second chances. She specifically talks about Capricorn (laughs) and how he's a monster for trying to murder his brother, which is something that, we've largely forgiven him for uh, because we know the context. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And this is so perfect, right? We have this woman that several times throughout the book, Victoria has looked at and said, I don't think you're legit. I think something's going on here. You don't seem sorry at all. You seem like you're a jerk still, and you're just taking advantage of the system. And then this person, this person is challenging Tristan for what he did. And she's not wrong, right? I mean, like he did this horrible, horrible thing. But as you said, we and importantly, Victoria are pretty much aware of the full context around those choices and the efforts that he's made after those choices. And we and Victoria have pretty much gotten to a place where we're okay with it, especially since importantly, his victim, Byron, is at a place where he's okay with it. Um, But yeah, not this person. And it's so interesting to see this person that Victoria doubts call out someone that she is very, very close with. Yeah, right. And I mean, and I think that it's kind of fun that the that, you know, Moonsong is then like, are you sure that's the only reason you were picking on Tristan? And and <laughs> I think I, it's Victor who says that, right? Is it Victor? It was, I don't yeah. I don't actually remember exactly, but I th- I actually think it's <laughs> sort of twisted, but it's it's actually somewhat describes credit that she's like, yeah, okay, maybe you have a point. Yeah. Um, I don't remember exactly what she says, but but uh it's she she's got some self-awareness there i think yeah yeah i mean and and as does moonsong as we'll see in a bit but yeah i mean i think there's some of this terrible ideology is ingrained in you and it's not going to go away right away yeah uh so it really looks for a minute like scribe will be our next breaking point because she keeps thinking about how as these conversations continue she feels like walls are coming up around her especially as moonsong begins to lay out the consequences for her talking to victor which is explicitly paralleling this trigger that she had in prison. So trigger event happened in prison. Walls are coming up. She's feeling stu- suffocated and stifled. Uh oh, we're, we're nearing trigger event territory. Yeah, I do. I think you're right. And as we talked about already, this is a fun thing. The structure of the chapter is doing. 
I, I do think it's really important that in this moment where it seems like it could be her, what what is happening? Moonsong is chastising her for some of the stuff she said, but she's reaching out, right? She says, I'm choosing to trust you. I'm choosing to give you the benefit of the doubt, even as your behavior and your kind of hard headedness make it very difficult for people in this organization to do that. She's not giving up on her yet. And perhaps it's that precise reason that Scribe is not one of the ones that tightens when everything goes to hell. It's that she has this person that is not willing to give up on her yet, is still willing to extend that benefit of the doubt to her, whether or not she deserves it or not. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think that's exactly exactly what's happening here. She, she's she's with someone and Rune is basically sent away. Uh, I mean, uh, Victor, rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Uh, so before everything goes to shit, we get a little moment of change for Moonsong, actually. Speaking of characters, second chances, forgiveness, et cetera, et cetera, admitting that she's been wrong, uh, especially after seeing uh, Fur Kate come back. She's trying to work yeah. through her, her, her own process, and and she, she feels like it's taken time, it's taken effort, but she's making progress on it, or at least she thinks she has, and she's trying to. And, I mean, she she's actually she's actually putting in the energy to kind of coach scribe onto a better path too. So, you know, there's really some evidence here that Moonsong was a bit, a bigot, has been a bigot, maybe is a recovering bigot, not fully recovered, but definitely trying. And then of course, everything goes to shit in the middle of this conversation. Yeah. I, I think, I think she, she mentions the idea of, you know, fake it till you make it right. Like this uh-huh. idea of, you know, it's so much easier if I just nod and pretend and don't say anything, everyone. And then eventually that just becomes how I believe. And mm-hmm. she's, she's well on that process. I mean, she still says she finds being gay as a weird thing to do, which again, not a good look there, Moonsong. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think she's acknowledging that that is not a good thought process to have. And that is the first step to becoming a better person. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I think this is growth. This is change for her. Uh, I'm I'm happy to see that. Um, I hope I hope she doesn't die horribly. Yeah, me too. So then everything starts cracking apart and, and disintegrating, and Scribe barely manages to find and rescue the rest of the team uh, before Victor Titan's boosted power overtakes them. Moonsong then tells her that Victor has been struggling and been full of self doubt and loneliness, and that he's he's the one who gave in. Oh, it's so tragic, right? Like this reveal that, oh, actually his girlfriend had broken up with him. He's been having a hard time. He's been feeling isolated and alone. And in this moment, when Scribe realizes it, she shouts towards the Titan, be strong. We are family. And it's just too late. It's just yeah. too late. I love that. Yeah. Um, right. I, I really like, like, this is the first like bit of action we get in this chapter. And basically we have scribe who is this person that's like action speak louder than words, right? That's, that's that she believes. That's why I don't need to apologize. I'm showing that I am repentant through my actions. And we see here when shit goes down, what does she do? She immediately acts. She immediately jumps. She saves her team. She saves Moonsong. Um, I just think that's pretty important. Um, yeah, right. I, I feel like she probably could have easily saved herself and just left them behind, but instead right. she, she saved all of them. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. Connections, a, man. Connections. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's 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 inspiring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, by the way, now Victor has this like army of pregnancy monsters around him. I, I don't know if that's meant to be a thing that's going to go forward, but those cool. are definitely all surrounding him when he triggered. So thanks, Amy. Cool. <laughs> um, 
so we switch back to Eric again, who spends a bit of time thinking about his own behavior. Uh, so he, he thinks about Victoria and how he thinks that she is too deep into things. He says she needed to be far away from this in the same way a doctor needed to avoid operating on his family. A judge couldn't deliver a sentence to her spouse. It didn't mean she got it, though. That parahumans were so close to the problem, it made their judgment suspect sometimes. That oversight was needed. The XPRT capes got those things, accepted the objective calls. So, like... He's got a worldview. <laughs> yeah, he certainly does. And I want to talk about this for a long, long, long time. Yeah, um, let's do it. Because what the book is doing here is, as you said before, is drawing a line between Eric and Victoria here, right? Like this this wording, this idea of getting it is something that Victoria has echoed in the past. And in fact, a judgment that Victoria made of Eric the first time she saw her or she saw him was he clearly just doesn't get it. He doesn't get the seriousness of the situation. He doesn't get what it means. He just doesn't get it. And that is uh, something that she has said about non-capes, about human beings in the past, right? That they can't get it. They can't understand because they are too far. They are too far removed from it. And then we see Eric here who says almost the opposite, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can't get it because you're too close to it. (laughs) And I mean, this is it's fascinating because it's kind of reflecting exactly why these two people butt heads so much is because they are their views are so similar but almost opposed exactly opposed to each other they mirror each other almost i mean i think it's pretty brilliant because like which one of them is right that's a fantastic question because obviously victoria is is right that she has perspectives and information and experience that cannot be matched by somebody watching from the sidelines. Sure. But he, I think he's exactly right that he, he has, and, and humans in general, and, and the, the, the human oversight of the PRT, have an objectivity and, and an ability to step back from it. And like th- that's, that's got its value too, right? It's, yeah. Maybe, I think you could debate like on a case-by-case basis whether objectivity is more important than domain expertise and you know, the ability to, to, to make the right call. Um, but at least it's a, it's a dichotomy that, that makes sense. You know, I, I mean, yeah. the, the metaphor of, of the judge or, or the, the doctor are, there's, there's real world things that, that matters. That's real. Yeah. And I think, I do think they're both kind of right and kind of wrong. And I think the, the issue here is extending the central idea out too broadly, right? Mm-hmm. Like this idea that only the PRT capes can understand this, Eric says, uh, if you're not in the PRT, if you're not an ex-PRT person, you can't get it. Victoria also says only people that have been out in the field have been fighting capes can get it. It's too it's too broad. It's too generalized. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this is a case by case thing. And I think that's where they're both. They both err here. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, before we get on in, into the next bit about Eric, I just wanted to say like the, I, I think the, this is the closest that he gets to being a bit anti-parahuman is, is that he definitely kind of paints the heroes with the broad brush of just kind of thinking like they're all just kind of obnoxiously type A <laughs> yeah, and, and they kind of need to be managed, um, <clears throat> which I suppose is a kind of prejudice, but like it, it strikes me as like what the, you know, uh, you know, back office person would feel about like the, the talent you know sure, what I mean? Sure. Like, it, yeah, yeah. It, it, where, where it's like, well, are, is he wrong though? <laughs> like, like the heroes are all kind of their own special 
bundle of neuroses. So that isn't necessarily something where I'm going to hold it against him too hard. The next thing that you wanted to talk about, I think I would hold against him. Yeah. So the thing we have to talk about, Eric, especially as we see in this point of view, is there's some clear latent sexism going on in this dude's brain. Right. Um, As he's thinking about Victoria here, he sees her as someone who's never been in the PRT. So she can't possibly understand the PRT. She can't possibly understand his perspective. But then he says, well, she did have some some relations. She almost joined and she slept with a ward. Um, And of course, who he's talking about here is Dean and that um, is not a very charitable way of describing Victoria's multi-year serious relationship with a cape Dean, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is very much there. There is some there's some some sexism there, right? Some idea of like like she's he's he's shrinking the relationship down to just sex uh, and 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 maybe there's some implication there and i don't even know if he's aware of that implication he might be but maybe there's some impl- implication there that like she that, that that she was using him or she like like was using sex to get knowledge or something i don't know it's it, not explicit it, but it, i think it is interesting because i think i have the same kind of perception as you that there's there's sexism it's it's between the lines it's subtextual um if you asked Eric, do you think women are inferior to men? He would say, no, what are you talking about? I'm not right. a sexist. But little um, uh, presumptions and and subconscious, like unexamined biases do kind of filter through. Yeah, and I think that can absolutely inform how you approach people of the opposite sex, even subconsciously, in, in negative, damaging ways. And I, I do think that is something that he's brought to this Victoria conversation this victoria argument and it has influenced even subconsciously the way he feels about her generally um it has added to his general frustrations with her i think that's absolutely true just in the same way maybe not the exact same way but in a similar way to how i think victoria's anti-human biases have informed her opinion of of eric and her interpretations Mm -hmm. of the things he says and the things he does i think that's absolutely true um But yeah, Yeah. I mean, this is I think this is deliberate, right? Because like that was a choice, right? To say he did sleep with a ward or she 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 did sleep with a ward. That is a specifically crafted way of thinking that the text is trying to allow us to draw a conclusion about his character from. So it is not it is absolutely not something we can ignore or pass over. That is not a good look. It is bad. Um, Eric is not a great person in the same way that Scribe is not a great person. Yeah. Yeah, they're. They've, they've, they've got issues. They don't, I, I think that's, that's the interesting thing is like scribe doesn't endorse Nazism anymore, but, but I think the average person would probably say she hasn't made the, the necessary efforts to distance herself from it. Sure. Sure. And similarly, like Eric, I don't think endorses any of these n- bad uh, elements he has within his makeup, but, um, that doesn't mean he doesn't have them. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And that's almost some of the most insidious kind of of prejudices, right? Are the kinds that like I feel like it's easy to squash out obvious outspoken prejudice. Yeah. It's much harder to do this kind of latent um subconscious informing your thoughts without you realizing <clears throat> it type of stuff. Well, almost everybody is like either Eric or Scribe in these ways about something or other. Like 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 we're not conscious of the things that we're not conscious of. Yeah, we're, sure. We're, and and like most of us are not like, you know, 
Jack Slash. Most of us, the issues that we have are the ones that we can't see. Mm-hmm. Exactly like these characters. Sure. Or, or the ones that we can maybe kind of see, but we don't really see the problem with it because like... <laughs> Cause like, it's just, it's not a big deal, you know? Yeah. And, and like, that's, I love that's... women. I, I like this. I like this. I like scenario. I yeah. love women. Yeah. yeah. I love, I love women. I, I have a daughter. Yeah. Right. Wait, wait a minute. What? Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Right. So, um, yeah. So we switch over from this scene to Mark was dealing with what, like you said earlier, we think for a moment might be Amy going Titan, but what's actually Hunter going Titan. And it's a moment of being kind of badass, actually, how he's using his power all out and just barely keeping them from being obliterated. Yeah, I mean, I think this is some of the most direct fighting against the Titans we've seen so far. And uh, damn, it's yeah. absolutely brutal. I, I forgot, like I had totally forgotten that Marcus's power is like cool bones, but also every time... I break them. It, it feels like it feels to get a bone broken. And I don't know if you out there have ever gotten your bones broken, but it hurts real bad. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Huh. It hurts real, real bad. So that's fun. Yeah. Have fun, Marquis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, that's the thing though, is basically he's being heroic, right? Like the, yeah. the text explicitly humanizes him. Uh, it talks about how he was so thirsty. It was something that always got him, got to him in battles. If they ran long enough that the adrenaline faded, the thirst, the human needs. Once he reached that point, he tended to make his exit. It was the point that things started getting sloppy. That to me, that's a paragraph that is explicitly there to humanize this, this person. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think to continue our trend of the chapter, here's another person uh, who Victoria doesn't like too much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we do focus on some of the more human parts of him. He's trying. He's a complicated person. He's not good per se, um, but he is trying to do certain things. He's emphasizing connections between the people he cares about. Uh, he's trying to save people. Um, and and I, I do think this is like we're building like a common bridge between people, right? Like, like regardless of how much of a bad person you are, one thing you have in common is you have people in your life that you care about. And you don't want to see those people get hurt. And that is something across humanity that is binding them together in this moment of great tragedy and suffering that everyone's trying to protect the people that they care about. Right. Here again, Marquis is not a, a good guy. He is trying to save his daughter. That's mm-hmm. that's something you can't, you can't be too mad about, right? Even if his daughter is Amy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's loaded. Uh, yeah. But, but I mean... it's. But I mean, still, you know... Yeah. 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 I, I don't I don't feel comfortable making a moral judgment on that being like saying, no, actually, what you should be doing, Marquis, is letting your daughter die. No, um, yeah. I don't want to say that. Yeah. Not, I mean, that's just not realistic for for a human. Um, but yeah, I I I am. I, um, I like this a lot. Um, I, I, like, I think that this this bit um, where so I'll read I'll read this bit here because i think this is a good bit of tech or a good uh just kind of a good moment a good story moment mm-hmm. um i don't think i can do this amelia mewled i think you must there's no question marquis answered he knew from experience that she didn't tend to respond to that kind of prodding or absolute even though it was a part of what drove him rigid codes and obligations he set up around himself he had no idea what else to say um, and, and yeah, so like, I, I think I felt this way personally, uh, so, so, like somebody around you needs a very specific kind of help. And maybe in that moment, you're just not capable of being that for them. And, and you, you kind of feel like a failure. And I, just, I felt like it was a very human moment there. All, you know, 
in addition to everything else. Yeah, it is. And I think I think it shows like a fundamental failure in Marcus's ability to be the person for Amy. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. like specifically here, his whole deal, his the whole way in which he lives and constructs his life, he explicitly says is just not the type of things that Amy responds to. Right. R- the rules and codes and absolutism of his life just don't really work on her. So he can't succeed here. Um, but maybe maybe someone else can. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just really like we, we just got to talk about Amy here. I think it's really interesting. And I, I don't want to read too much into this because Amy, but we do see her early in this chapter as a person that's absolutely reeling. Right. Hunter has just been turned into a monster. And that means that Amy's failure here is now absolute. Right. She didn't yeah. heal Hunter. She didn't fix her. She failed. A hundred percent failed. And again, I don't want to give Amy too much credit here, but I do think we maybe see an Amy that might actually be recognizing that failure, maybe in a way that maybe will push change. I mean, probably not, but maybe. I mean, like, like at least you can sketch out the argument that there's that there, there'd be hope because basically you could say this is just the Victoria situation again. Like, right. like, like you, you, you fucked up beyond all repair twice now sure and even somebody that good at mental gymnastics is going to have a hard time uh turning their head away from that one yeah and her ability to listen to her father here in a minute seems to perhaps indicate that recognition i don't know again like i have gotten burned by amy so many times in this book (laughs) that i'm just like the the extension of the benefit of the doubt is like i think in the next chapter victoria says like i'm having a really hard time trusting people and like that's how i feel about amy right now so i don't (laughs) i don't want to extend that too much but i don't know maybe maybe yeah i mean another thing we have going for us in the situation is is like usually it's just victoria being the voice of cut the shit Amy mm-hmm. and now we've got her two dads flanking her and, and saying the same thing true yeah so yeah so as, as we're running uh, the strong capes that lab rat had previously tapped for their strength are getting brutally torn apart by hunter um I guess proving Mark was right <laughs> uh, we also established that Amy's avatars can indeed stand up to the titans which I suspect is going to matter quite a bit for the coming arc I do think you're right, though I worry how much they will matter. Like, if it turns out the only thing that they can employ to stop the bad titans is Amy and Labrat's slave creations, that's going to feel kind of icky, isn't it? I'm not going to feel good about that. It's definitely thematically complex. Uh, They do establish that the lab is destroyed, right? Yeah, so they're done creating new ones. So they can't just churn out a bunch of a bunch more Jaborans to be their foot soldiers. Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, so uh, yeah, flash, flashbang like we said, does actually push Amy really hard to go see that therapist. Uh, even though in this moment, you could hardly blame him for waiting until after they've escaped from the kill zone. <laughs> he He's like really internalized how important this was to Victoria and just how objectively important it is. So he, he makes her promise to go to two therapy sessions and to kind of just keep going and more. Yeah. Like yeah. every time you're going to make me another promise to go to the next one. Um, yeah, yeah he shows up big here. It's quite yeah. incredible. Like I, I think it's, it's very impactful that he even admits here that the reason why he's not succumbing to the pull of going Titan is because of the connections he has because mm-hmm. of the promises he's made to Carol, to Victoria and to Amy herself. He he's holding on and she has to do that too. She has to do that too. 
I love this. I mean, amidst all this death and destruction and tragedy, this is a real like, fuck yeah moment. And we don't know if Amy's going to follow through on that promise, right? Like she could very well not all my hope, all my maybes could be tossed aside and she just carries on the way that she has been. But we have to at least celebrate a moment of victory here with Mark who finally stepped up, finally did what he needed to do. Finally fulfilled his purpose for being here. He, he over and over again, he's like the reason he's with Amy, the reason he is, is attempt to rein her in attempt to, to make her so she doesn't go too far. And here, finally, finally, he steps up to that challenge and does something about it. And he, that deserves, yeah. deserves a clap on the back for, for flash Pang. Yeah. He dadded the fuck up. He did. Finally. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. Um, so we go back to Eric after this scene and we find out that the capes in breakthroughs area have gone quiet, which is a bit worrying. There's also a bit of fun color here that apparently Eric thinks of scenario as his partner. Yeah. And we get a little more of that sexism kind of poke through here, right? As he like kind of negatively plays up Victoria's feminine qualities, like how she bats her eyes and smiles and wears mm-hmm. her outfits and, and tricks people. Whereas scenario is this tough as nails person who get, tells it like it is yeah um like a man for, right exactly kind of like that's i think that's the I mean, implication she is i mean he doesn't say that but no I, but i think I, that's like the implication of what he's he, saying yeah 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 um now of course like the way in which he describes this is bad but what he's basically saying is victoria says one thing and does another uh which is objectively true that is literally what she's done throughout this entirety of this arc um but again yeah it is it is his latent sexism that that frames this in this extremely uncharitable way. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. So then we jet over to Moose watching Prancer undergo the transformation, failing to stop himself as his body is taken apart by a broken shift into the breaker state. After some just fucking heartbreaking dialogue, Moose tries to shoot him in the head, but his body reacts defensively and shoves Moose through their three other bystanders crushing all of them. Moose is then basically killed, but before he can die, he begins his transformation into another Titan, and then him and Prancer join together, consolidating into one greater being. Uh, this is this is the most tragic of all of them, right? I think it may be the most beautiful, too. Like, it's very short and sad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I really think this is a great little bit. I like that it starts like after like mid transformation, right? Like this, yeah. this moment where like Prancer is gone breaker form. He's slowly transforming and he's like, well, buddy, this is it. This is it for me. Mm-hmm. It's like, he's on the Titanic and he's going down and he's <laughs> like, well, this is it. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I think it, it is interesting here because, you know, Prancer is a complicated character. Um, he has some, some tendencies that are not great. Moose also pretty complicated, but I think out of all of our characters, these are probably the ones that, Victoria has the least amount of specific hatred towards. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I think she she definitely holds it against them that they're that they're villains who who took advantage of people in a weak time. Sure. Same way as she same way as she resents all the villains, um, puts them in that basket. But they did kind of help her out in that whole cradle situation. Probably earned a few points there. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting that we these are the ones we conclude on, um, and. I mean, we don't get to see out of any of these Titans, which are going to go good, good team Titan that I'm hoping for. <laughs> yeah. uh, but out of any of them, it seems like the greatest chances for these guys, maybe. I don't know. Um, 
there is something beautiful, like they had a relationship, right? And there is, mm-hmm. I think you're right. There's something beautiful of them literally, you know, coming together in this way. But I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, it's sad. Like the, the moment, like, I think the, this, the moments where he like pulls this gun out and like pulls the trigger to try to put someone out of his misery and has denied that multiple times mm-hmm. is just really tragic, really tragic. Yeah. I, I, I agree completely. Like the, the idea that, prancer kind of just the image of, of prancer kind of wanting it to happen but his his already shard body taking control and, and right. killing his friend like it's 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 horrible yeah. it is it is which yeah. i mean to me indicates that maybe maybe he will lose control and not be part of team good shard but maybe the moose the moose factor will will bring him back pull yeah. him back i don't know i don't yeah, know we'll see yeah so then we go back with eric we learned that scenario has also succumbed um uh, which is hits him pretty hard, and yeah. Citrine suggests that the heroes abandon the city. Yeah, um, yeah. I, the the uh, the text says Eric's mentor, patron, supporter, his partner in a way. She'd elevated him with the implication she'd drop him if he didn't keep up with her, and he'd kept up. One person he'd been able to count on to back him up, and he was going to f- be feeling the lack of that backup if his heated spat with Antares came up. Above all else, she'd been a friend, someone he'd respected and liked. Look, I know Eric's a prick. <laughs> I know Eric's got some some issues with women. And it is very possible that he completely misread and conflated this relationship with Scenario, right? It does seem a little weird that after only a month, Scenario would, like, agree that this college intern is her partner. But I think as we talked about last week, when you're in the trenches with someone, a short amount of time can end up being a long time. Um, it just, like, you're such an emotional impactful relationship that it it seems longer than it is so but but whether he's wrong or right about their partnership uh, their mentorship whatever it is we'll probably never know now because scenario is gone but i do think it's sad and i feel bad for this guy that he's losing a person that he quite obviously cares about a lot um regardless of his asshole nature which yes is there absolutely i'm not saying he's a good person but he he's a person that cares about some people and and he's seeing the person he cared about die and that's sad yeah i mean he's not a he's not a cape so so what i'm about to say doesn't apply to him specifically but kind of the metaphorical the the metaphorical level on which all of these these povs work to me is that all of these people are 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 jerk asses is the technical (laughs) term um who who like you could, you'd be justified in writing them off. You'd be justified in saying, fuck these guys, each and every one of them. They suck. Cut them off. Drag them. Kill them. Um, Okay, well, the only reason that Scribe didn't didn't, uh, go Titan, fall through the cracks, disappear, self-destruct, implode, is that she had one person willing to offer her a hand up. The only reason Marquis didn't, the only reason Amy didn't, the only reason Flashbang didn't, the only reason um, my brain's having a, a misstep, the only reason so many of these jerk asses didn't have the, the, the Titan effect, which I, I think me- metaphorically is the same thing as self-destructing and taking a bunch of people with you, is because somebody else lent them a hand offered yeah. them offered them an opportunity to to stay connected to humanity um so that i i see that as being the 
lesson perhaps here? Yeah, well, I, I think it's interesting. We, we talk so much about reaching out. We talk about community. We talk about co- everyone coming together. And at some point, you're going to need to come together with people that suck a little bit, right? Like, yeah. like the idea of, of community is you can't just only invite the good ones. Well, the community is everyone. It is the, the best people and some of the not so great people. Um, and re- we've now established a world in which being isolated shunning people uh, isolating them pushing them out ostracizing them could literally cause them to explode and take a bunch of people out with them yeah um and so it becomes more important than ever to extend the hand to these people even if you acknowledge that they're shitty parts of them and they need to get better at that uh that's so important now yeah i mean there's nobody's perfect everybody has (laughs) problems right sure Sure. Yeah. And, and and I think that's that's the crucial thing to get to 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 understand, I think, about what the story is doing, especially with this part of the story. Yeah, I agree. I mean, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, yeah. There There is this moment at the end of this chapter where after Eric finds out about what happened to scenario, he looks at Victoria and he expects her to be gloating over his loss, which is like super uncharitable of him yeah (laughs) it's like super super cruel to just assume that victoria would be gloating but what he finds when he looks at her is victoria wiping away tears she says to him she lost a friend um and she doesn't say two but i think there's an implication there like he's lost someone she's lost a friend her other friends are safe breakthrough is safe the major malfunctions are safe so maybe they're tears of sadness for her lost friend maybe they're tears of relief he's not sure And I don't know, maybe this is just me being too optimistic because I want people to strive to be the best versions of ourselves. But I do see a tinge of hope in this. Eric looks at Victoria expecting her to be doing something terrible, but instead all he sees is her doing something essentially human, crying, tears of grief, tears of relief, doesn't matter which they are, she's crying. No one else is looking at this moment. No one else notices. I think the text specifically says that people are kind of avoiding looking at other people's grief, avoiding acknowledging other people's grief. But he looks at her and they see each other in this moment. And there's this moment of connection there. And I hope that perhaps both of them in this moment realize that despite their differences, despite the fact that they look at each other differently and they have different priorities and uh, obviously they have different um, inclinations that they are connected in this way. This this moment, this thing is affecting all of them. They are all losing people. Basically, what I'm saying is I hope Eric is on a path to less prickishness and this moment can be a, a realization for him in that regard. And I, and I, I hope the same exact thing about every one of these POVs Yeah, that, that they're on the right path via their connections to other people Yeah, is, and I, and I, I mean, I, I kind of want that to be what the story is doing. Sure. Um, and we'll see, we'll see. We will see. Um, there, now we never have to talk about Eric again. Yep. He's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's gone from the story from now on. He's not though. But. <laughs> All right. 18.1. New arc. Yay. The hero is pulled back. Radiation. Radiation. Bad. That's got no negative connotations because light (laughs) radiates from the sun. That's the only connotation. It's life. It's life. Yeah. The hero is pulled back from the city and those in the situation room reel from what seems to be heavy losses. Armstrong uh, gives Victoria a debrief going over her notes with him in detail. Her mind spirals and loops as she thinks through the answers. Uh, She's clearly having trouble getting her head around the disaster. 
Yeah, I knew. I think it is interesting that we see just how much he relishes the chance of being distracted, though, right? Like she's reeling about this thing um, and she's like, oh, an opportunity to to look at notes and files, clarifications mm-hmm. of intended meetings. She loves this idea. Mm-hmm. And I love how immediately conscious Victoria is of the change in tension in the situation room as well. Right. To tie into what we were just talking about, she acknowledges that Eric and the people like Eric are suffering from loss and horror because they didn't expect this. And, and like I was just, I think that is, that is kind of maybe an, an idea of this connection between them that, that even as she still doesn't like him and she says like she could be in a situation where she could find herself yelling at him again, I think there has been this acknowledgement that they're both suffering now, that they're both been through this. I really, I really yeah. like this opening. Right. Well, I mean, in the sense that they're mirrors of each other, they're mirroring their apparent choice to just stay out of each other's way from now on. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I, I just, I, I do love that her mind is kind of for, for every thought. There's like eight subsequent tangent thoughts before she gets back on track. It, it's, it's good writing to portray the idea of someone who is reeling um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, the question, the first question asks what a gut feeling means. And she considers this a bit uh, very circuitously and then comes in the end to decide that it's kind of like a feeling of familiarity. Um, when asked how sure she is that the gut feeling is agent derived, she says 70 percent, uh, but it's hard to draw a firm line, which she should answer that because title tale is pretty clear that you can't draw a firm line. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's her acknowledging the title feels right. I do like when she says, how much of this is you, agent? Let me ask. Let me let me pull the audience. Let me pull Uh the agent. How much of this is you, buddy? Huh? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I I do like to go back to what you're talking about, how her mind kind of reeling, like she is specifically answering these questions and welcoming these questions as a distraction from dealing with what's going on. And she gets her first question about what a gut feeling means and immediately goes to think about fumehood, right? Like, it's Mm -hmm. just like she, even in this moment where she's attempting to distract herself, she can't because it's immediately like I'd convinced fumehood to get back in the game. She'd planned to retire and I'd played a big role in convincing her to stick it out and keep trying to help. So it's like, even in this moments where she's trying to distract herself, she's all tying it together and relating it back to what, what she's going through yeah sure because the gut feeling thing she's getting is about the gut feeling about whether fume hood's situation is going to be reversible or not so like she's looking at these questions the answers as a way to distract herself from what's happening but she can't help but link them back to the present day horrors anyway she can't distract right. herself yeah i mean it's it's funny because like if if you came across this chapter with no familiarity of what the story was and, and what the context was you would be like, man, this point of view is fucking all over the place. Like, like <laughs> what is what is happening? Uh, we understand completely. We understand that, like you said, she's like vacillating between multiple trains of thought because she's she's having she's having a hard time and trying to distract herself from that. Yeah, yeah, agree, agree. I do yeah. think it's interesting, and I'm not going to take credit for this because I, I think I saw this either in our Discord or on the Reddit. I, I don't remember, so sorry for not giving the person credit, but I'm not going to take credit. Since Victoria has renamed her force field Fragile One, as she refers to it here, she has not used the term wretch anymore. She's Mm. completely transitioned to calling it Fragile One. Um, And I think that's interesting because it reflects the change in relationship, right? This this, this force field, this thing is no longer related to that time in the hospital. It is now related to something different. And now I've renamed it and redubbed it. And I think that's important. Yeah, he reclaimed it as as hers in a different way. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So after she has answered these questions and made her clarifications, Miss Militia pulls her away. 
gives us the closest thing to a dressing down that Miss Militia <laughs> is capable of. This is kind of Hannah's whole thing, right? Like being almost too sympathetic for her own good. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that is definitely, I mean, she was the one, she was like the only one that was like trying to reason with Taylor um, and trying to, and, and attempting to be sympathetic to, to everything Taylor was trying to do. And I think we see that here a little bit. I, I do think at the end of this conversation, we see her like draw this very rough comparison between Victoria and the fallen, which we're going to talk about that when we get to it. But I think this just, this does betray just how frustrated she is right now. And she's not going to come full out and say that, but I think that does kind of show how fucking annoyed they are with Victoria right now. Yeah. Right. I mean, basically she's infinitely patient, but even, even here she's like, all right, I have to get this off my chest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, from the get, she makes it clear that it's not going to be a happy conversation because she says, if defiant were the one having this talk, there would be a lot of yelling uh, because his feelings are hurt. Yeah. You hurt his feelings. I loved Victoria's reaction to like imagining this like eight foot tall, half robot man, like, Getting hurt feelings. Yeah. Of but course, yeah. We, yeah. We know him well enough to know that he totally is sad about this. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I do think it's interesting here. We do see a pattern emerge, right? Arc 16 ends with Victoria choosing to do something she was told specifically not to do. 17.1 is a well-respected character from back in Worm chastising Victoria for this decision in uh, in uh, Defiant. Arc uh-huh. 17 is mostly Victoria pretending to listen and follow orders while secretly disobeying once again. And 18.1 starts with a well-respected character from Worm chastising her for her decisions. Um, and this is interesting because I think this pattern is either being established as a way of depicting of clearly depicting the dangerousness of Victoria's behavior by positioning her against characters that, that the audience knows respects and loves. I mean, defiant and miss militia are two characters that I think you would agree. Most of this community likes a whole, whole bunch. Um, Yeah. And, and we believe that they are good guys, right? Or, or it could be a specific way of kind of showing how the old guard is, or has become out of touch, how things have moved on beyond this traditional cape system that we are in at this place in the book. And then those older experienced capes just don't get it anymore or need to catch up. It's kind of like kind of like the OK Boomer of the parahumans world, possibly. (laughs) I don't think it's the latter one. Um, I do think it's probably the former, but I just wanted to bring that up because it is possible that that's that's one of the things we're doing. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I love that you pull out this parallel where this arc starts in a way very reminiscent of the way the last arc started. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder if we're doing a setup, setup subvert type thing here where yeah. she's going to learn like, okay, well last time I was given a command and then I didn't listen and then something bad happened. But I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really sure what her, yeah, I guess I'm just not too sure about where, um, where she wants to take things right now. Yeah. I mean, so here's here's my problem with this idea that the wardens are stupid and Victoria was right the whole time. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's going to be a very satisfying story if Victoria is just 100 percent right about everything and need and doesn't need to learn anything and doesn't need to grow or realize mistakes or anything. You know, I just don't think that's inherently satisfying from a, a, a narrative perspective. So, yeah, I'm. I mean, she's just, she just is only, she has experience with what she has experience with. And so it it makes sense that she'd be right about things that are kind of in her local world. Makes sense that she'd be more knowledgeable, knowledgeable about what's going on with Amy. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
the wardens have a much broader perspective on things. Like it's very reminiscent of Taylor. Um, basically, I think there was even a thread about this making this connection. So I'm not going to take credit for this connection, but pointing out that Taylor like didn't give a shit about the fact that the PRT had a very broad set of concerns on their plate. Taylor was always immediately concerned with like, you did me wrong in this specific situation and then you didn't handle the fallout of that very well. So fuck you and your whole organization. (laughs) Right. Right. And Victoria's not nearly as bad as Taylor in that regard. Um, but, but definitely, definitely Victoria is, um, basically Victoria's privy to what Victoria's privy to, which is not even a fraction of the full scope of what the wardens have had to be dealing with. So. For sure. And, yeah. and, and the, uh, I don't think she recognizes the difficulty in managing an organization as large as theirs. The, the things that mm-hmm. you have to prioritize that maybe in her own little group is not as important. Yeah. Right. I mean, we, we know for a fact, most of these hard hitting capes have like just been away, like fighting pitched battles with unnamed uh, class S threats. So like the whole, the whole time, the whole, the time. whole book. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So back to the conversation with Miss Militia, um, she's doing this thing where she kind of slowly deals out how much she knows and she gives Victoria chances to come clean. But at every turn, Victoria is totally tight lipped, even as Miss Militia lays out that like, yeah, we know everything. <laughs> we, we saw the subterfuge with Kinsey. We saw the frequent power use. And we saw the overall pattern of just flouting the rules that we set down. Um, and then she goes on to say, and there will be consequences. But like those consequences are pretty like light and, and vague, actually. Yeah. Like it, it actually seems to me that Kinsey is going to suffer worse blowback than Victoria actually will. Um, because, I mean, I think explicitly Miss Militia says like the calls that you made were good calls. You just happened to make them while being completely duplicitous. Um, whereas... Kenzie's behavior is worrying in kind of a whole different way where she's just (laughs) like hacking into systems nonstop, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to spend some time on this conversation with you. Uh, I think I think we need to spend a lot of time on this because there's a a bunch of different angles Mm -hmm. to it that I find really fascinating. Um, I think you are absolutely right that at the beginning, Miss Militia is playing very loose with the knowledge she has. She's kind of letting Victoria confess as much as she wants her to. But Victoria, who knows she's about to be yelled at, because that's one thing Miss Militia said, is playing this like very it's very intelligent the way she kind of approaches this conversation. Like, look at this part. She says, and I wasn't exactly wearing kid gloves or operating under any happy go lucky delusions about how serious things were when I went to Shin as a favor to the wardens or brought my team into the fight to take this compound and stop teacher. And we lost Swansong because of it. So, like, she knows she's about to be yelled at and she's kind of emphasizing the places in which she's specifically helped to them. Like mm-hmm. before you chastise me, remember when we did this favor for you and the result of this favor is I was kidnapped and locked into a room with my sister. And then we helped you take this base. We wouldn't even be here right now if we didn't help you out. And we lost our teammate for you. Like it's very much like trying to manipulate in a way of like, before you yell at me, don't forget what I've done for you. Uh, I, it's very clever. I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I think overall the, like, like one, just like strategically should Victoria have, have, as soon as she realized she was caught, should she have just been like, yes, you're right. 
these are the <laughs> things that I did. And yeah. or, or was she right to just be tight lipped and let Miss Militia say this is what we caught you doing first? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah. if you're trying to like win the argument, I think making the other person confront you with supposedly what you've done when you don't know how much they know is probably mm. just the strategically intelligent decision. Yeah. But I think that, I think that maybe the crux of it is that Victoria doesn't think she did anything wrong. And yeah. so that's why she's not going to do that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, before we move on, we do have to focus on that. The Kensley alarm is going off once yeah. again, because in the past week there has been, uh, there hasn't been a waking hour where she wasn't idly penetrating systems, gathering data, watching someone through a camera she gained access to or figuring out how to sort the data she did collect. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, just constantly. This is her self self soothing behavior. Yeah. It's um, it's bad. Well, and I think the week before it was like just a couple times a day, and then now it's every hour on the yeah. hour. And the, yeah. I love, I love the the idea of the way they caught her is because they were like, wait a minute, she's not doing anything. That's yeah. suspicious. <laughs> That's she won't a, make that mistake again. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I love that. But but moving back to the conversation, it, it changes now when Miss Militia says, we know exactly what you did. You aren't listening to us. And then we see Victoria's tactic kind of shift here. She's like, OK, yes, I did do those things, but you don't understand. Your guy, Eric, was doing all the wrong things. And to her credit, Miss Militia admits that saying at first that she disagrees with some of Eric's choices and then coming right out and saying Eric did more harm than good, saying he's going back to square one. He's going to be punished. I'm taking him. He's going to work directly under me and he'll only get another chance to rise to the ranks again if he proves himself as competent as scenario seemed to think he was, Uh, which is, I think, a a point towards his understanding of of their relationship. Right. That obviously scenario has spoken highly of this person to other members of the wardens. But Mm -hmm. the point here is that Eric's rightness or wrongness is irrelevant to the argument that Miss Militia is making right now, that the wardens are a paramilitary organization. And for that organization to work, the chain of command and orders are things that need to be respected. Mm -hmm. If someone gives you a direct order, AKA do not contact your team. Don't, don't do that. Yeah. Don't do it. And definitely don't do it in a way that's super, super sketchy and, 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 and and ropes in a 12 year old to do dirty work for you. Right. Right. Maybe, you know, and, and the, I mean, like as much as I agree with you that Victoria doesn't think she did anything wrong or, or at least she's justified, like her duplicity here clearly acknowledges that she's aware that it's it's the thing that they don't want her to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And not yeah. just Eric, not just Eric, definitely Eric, absolutely definitely Eric. But I mean, like I know this this is a contentious and we've had conversations about this in the discord all week. Um, but like I, I get it, like I get it from an organizational standpoint especially for a person that you've been worried about for a while, that this isn't just one, one moment of being willing to kind of skirt authority. Um, I get, I get the worry here. I get why, I get why this, this organization would look at her and just be like, Oh man, man. But both, both sides are right in different ways is the problem, but both sides of of this, of this discussion. So I have a new analogy for you, Scott. Okay. I'm here with the analogies. All right. You're the, the, you, you have, you have a kid and you need to go out for the night. So you hire a babysitter. Okay. Sure. The babysitter is Victoria. 
you, you give the babysitter like three instructions. One of those instructions is no candy. Don't give the kid any candy. That's one of the, that, and, and like the other two are like, make sure that they don't stay up past 930 or something, whatever. Um, you then later find out that they gave the kid like one M&M. And here's the thing. One M&M doesn't really matter. It's not going to hurt sure. anybody. Who, who cares really? Except that was the one, that was the one fucking thing you told them, right? <laughs> so, so like now you know that they don't take your, like, they're, they're not, basically you know you can't trust them, right? Sure. It was a, It was a tiny thing. But it was enough to break trust, right? Like that that's how trust works, especially in a situation where you need to be able to count on this person to execute orders, right? Like like a babysitter isn't even a military or like thing, but but you do kind of need to trust your babysitter to be able to do exactly what you say, no more, no less, right? And 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 that's a much less serious uh, situation than this. So um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. Some people sometimes people don't find my analogies too helpful, but <laughs> I like that one a lot. I, I like it. I mean, I, I think we would have to find a way that to to make it so that the M and M that the babysitter did give was actually like helpful in some way. Because I mean that that is that is the the truth here is that the choices that Victoria made, despite being specifically against orders, did assist and make things better. Right. And and, and most Miss Melissa acknowledges that like I, I don't think she's dishonest about that and it, yeah. and and I think she says it is this that that makes it so your punishment really isn't that bad like her punishment is not you're you don't get our resources anymore we're gonna kick you out of the team you don't get to do anything with the wardens anymore it's just look the next time you ask for something we might be a little more hesitant in giving it to you and we're gonna be paying really 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 close attention to you right now for the next little bit of time um, mm-hmm. until you prove that you can be trusted again. That's it. And that's, it's pretty minor, man. I mean, it could have been yeah. a lot worse. It is, it is really minor. Like I, I kind of wonder what this will actually be, right? Like we haven't seen that yet. Sure. Um, maybe it'll be worse than we're kind of imagining. Maybe it'll be like a crucial, a crucial bit, bit of help denied at a crucial point in time. And it, and it ends up mattering a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to see that. Um, yeah. I mean, but it sounds like it's not going to be a big deal. I mean, one of the things, the reason that Eric was wrong was because his inability to understand that despite orders, if if there is a critical moment where critical information is obtained, people should know about it. Um, and so I think this organization understands that. I think Miss Militia's acknowledgement that Eric was wrong in some ways is is an acknowledgement of like that if there's a moment in which Victoria critically needs something, they're not going to deny that from her out of spite. But I also agree that they're not going to be as willing to trust her with important parts of, of this whole thing going forward. Yeah. I, I think and hope that you're right, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But before the conversation ends, Miss Militia has something she needs to get off her chest. Oh boy. She compares some of Victoria's behavior to that of the fallen particularly pointing out a pattern of behavior where they predicted a disaster, much like Victoria did. Turned out that they were right, even though that prediction was not really a long shot. Um, And then they took their successful prediction as a mandate to push things further. And the point she's trying to make is, number one, don't push your luck. Number two, heroes must hold themselves to a higher standard than everybody else. They have to try to be unimpeachable, not just skirt by and 
that that is the only way you you earn the leeway and understanding that you were afforded as a hero. Yeah. <laughs> this uh, on the surface comes off as super harsh, right? Like, you know what your behavior is reminding me of, Victoria? The fallen. Yeah. Um, and Victoria is like immediately defensive. And super I understand yeah. why. I think I think it is absolutely of design on Miss Malicious part that this comes off as super harsh. She is trying to be harsh to beat this lesson into her. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of and she says, you're not the fallen. You are not the fallen. I am not trying to say that you are the fallen. What I am saying here is that you are showing a pattern of behavior that is similar to a pattern of behavior that one of the worst organizations in the world showed previously. And while you're not go- you're obviously not going down the same road that they are maybe that should tell you something maybe that should tell you something about the choices you're making the decisions you're making and the person you want to be i really love that part at the end of like that you have to hold yourself to a higher standard as a hero you get the benefit of the doubt implicitly because you are on the side of hero and you need to live up to that benefit of the doubt you need to live up to that that central idea um and I love that idea. I mean, like, look, this is this is mean. It's borderline mean to do to someone. But I think there's design behind it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I, I think I think that she's right. Like, you do have to be you should be held to a higher standard. Right. Like a lot sure. of the discourse around law enforcement these days comes because like. Like, sh- shouldn't we hold people who we who we give the power to dispense justice shouldn't we hold those people to a higher standard like isn't that kind of how this should work and um i don't know that's a whole that's a whole nother thing but i mean that is that is kind of exactly what this is though so yeah i mean we could talk about that for a long time i i I 100 agree with that assessment and that's why when i hear in a lot of these instances of police violence that i hear them saying excuses i'm like yeah well that's an excuse for a non-trained individual it's not an excuse for a police officer right if you're using Um, that excuse don't do this job yeah right yeah exactly and of course let's be clear here victoria has done nothing to that level of awfulness this is almost a parable in warning form right this is yeah this you could head down a path um and and this is similar to i think some of the stuff we talked about earlier right this idea that like you push the envelope and it works and nothing bad happens. And you're like, oh, well, OK, well, next time I'm going to push it again. Yeah. And and maybe it'll work again. Maybe you'll be right again. Maybe things will work out again. But but there's every time you're doing that, you're rolling the dice and there's a chance that you're going to roll once. I mean, yeah, Miss Militia is like the closest thing we have to a grizzled old veteran mm-hmm. in, in the cave world. Sure. And, and, and when she picks out a pattern of behavior, you should probably take heed yeah yeah i love that i love that moment i've been called many things in my time as uh a member of the brockton bay prt and, and protectorate uh unfair was never one of them um, I, I love that yeah miss militia was never unfair to taylor mm-hmm. <laughs> unlike us unlike us i mean speaking of taylor specifically that was someone who who r- rolled on the roulette wheel over and over and over until she sure. came up with a bad roll basically sure. yeah so so yeah, harsh, absolutely. Maybe, uh, maybe unwarranted, maybe. But I think she makes she, she makes it very clear here that she's not saying you're fallen. Mm-hmm. She's saying, uh, "I'm I'm worried about you." Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I see I see things that concern me. Please, please take heed. Please listen. Yeah. And I'm going to use this very extreme example to drill that point home. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's exactly what she's doing. Yeah. Um, so Victoria immediately starts using her power, like as soon as she can when this conversation ends. Starts flying before she even leaves the building. She then flies aggressively through the night once outside, a kind of venting, violent flying, um, while also doing some minor experiments with her power. Oh man, like the writing of this, of this aggressive flying is so good. When I flew out of this cold, now broken world, I took to the air with a violence I hadn't been willing to use indoors, tearing through the sky in the same way a fighter might punch a wall to vent his fears or sorrow. No slowing before turns. I just took the brunt of it against my side and felt the cold and the wind punch through the soft outer layers I wore. I like this a lot because we know her, her, uh, her, the wretch, her force field protects her from the elements, mm-hmm. but she is almost intentionally not bringing it up here because she wants to feel all this. She wants to feel the G forces. She wants to feel the cold. She wants to feel the strain. She's, she's, this is, cl- I mean, it's classic, like screaming via, via flight. Yeah. Uh, I love, I love this writing so much. It's a very, very visceral way of conveying what's going on with her, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's pure, it's through action. It's good writing. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. She then finds that her apartment is fairly destroyed. Not so destroyed that she can't change into her costume. Uh, mainly, she's angry about the files. The files. The shards may have taken her friends and her city from her, but now they've crossed the fucking line. You know what else, Matt? The sweet-ass Ashley bookshelves. I know. The, the ones with the, like, obsidian or whatever. It's so good. All the cool shit. It's all I broken. Hope, do you think she backed up? Her files. I hope. I mean, I thought some of them were paper. Was part of the problem. Well, yeah, but like, well, no, scan she totally, that shit. To, no. After Imp comes in and dumps gasoline all over your stuff, you think you might want to prioritize backups. But I don't even know how many <laughs> days ago that was. That could have been four uh, days was, ago. Yeah, that was four days ago, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have no idea. But um, I I do yeah. I do like this destroyed apartment as kind of perfectly symbolic of the end of something, right? Yeah. Um. It, the apartment is gone. The place she lived with Ashley, who is gone, is now gone. The idea of domesticity, the idea of going through, getting through today and then going home and drinking hot chocolate and watching movies with Lookout, that's gone, right? Mm-hmm. There's no more normal life to go back to. There's no domestic situation to go back to anymore. Uh, until we're done with this thing, until we've reached the end of this thing, it's just going to be this now. Yeah. Um, and I like that as this perfect symbol of that. Just looking down at this destructed apartment, this destructed way of life. Uh, it's gone. It's gone. And, and really, I, I think it's necessary to, to do this because we, the readers, uh, we don't feel the destruction of the city if you just tell us the city was destroyed. Right, right. Even if we see cool images of black lightning and, and shit, like like... We feel the destruction of Victoria's apartment. This is a setting and a scene that we've seen many times. We have a lot of feelings about it. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, reminds me of how um, the the mall in Worm was used as a way of uh, a, a sort of uh, synecdoche of of Brockton Bay of like it's completely going to shit gradually. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a good point. That's a good so. point. Yeah. So then she flies back to the big meeting at Cauldron HQ. Uh, and we come to understand that we'll probably be spending the first part of this arc in this giant all-hands meeting where she'll be giving a presentation about the crystal landscape. We see Tattletail break through the malfunctions, the Dallins, and Amy's contingent are here. Hey, Amy's here and being led away somewhere. 
maybe therapy? I hope so. I do like there's this moment where she like Tattletail is like standing directly uh, like across from her in this meeting and she describes it as like a mirrored side of her. And I really like that mm-hmm. that that uh, depiction here. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. But I mean, this is this is the end of the first chapter of the arc. Right. And we have kind of everyone here now. All of our big players are here now. Heroes and villains alike are here to team up. Um, is everybody working together, Matt? At um, last, I mean, it looks like it, but <laughs> but we we're, we're just starting the meeting, though. We'll see. Sure. I mean, so this is when, I, and I'm I'm going to go down a rabbit hole a bit here. So ex- please excuse me. But I was thinking, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this moment that we've now achieved in this book that has now created this idea of community as not only important just for mental health and for support, but now has become literally the way to stop the world from ending because the more people are ostracized and, and downtrodden and alone, uh, the more likely they are to become a giant Titan monster. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea that everyone coming together and realizing Taylor's goal, uh, in a different kind of way is really fascinating to me. And I, and I, and I kind of was like, well, what maybe I went back, I went back to spec arc 30 of worm and I reread the Taylor Contessa conversation, um, which guys, if you guys haven't done that lately, just go do that. Cause that's such a, it's God, so well-written. That's such a great conversation, but I, it struck me this idea that, I mean, one of the things that they're talking about is this idea of Scion wasn't the important one. It was always about us. It was always about humans or parahumans or humanity. Um, and, and I like, we've, we've been sitting here wondering, about what Contessa's goal has been this entire time, right? What is her goal? What is her, what is she trying to accomplish? And I got to, and I got to the idea of, well, maybe what she's trying to do is trying to accomplish the very thing that Taylor tried to accomplish, but not in the Taylor way of doing it, which was just to Kepri and force everyone. And maybe not in a way that we need to come together because there's one big bad existential threat that we all have to individually fight against. Maybe the goal here has always been to bring people together for the sake of being together, for the sake of life is better this way. Existence is better this way. And I don't know, maybe that's what she's been working towards the whole time. And that's a very optimistic view of Contessa. But it's fascinating to me to like to draw a line between the impact that that conversation with Taylor had on her and all of her actions throughout this book is very interesting to me. Yeah. When you, you told me that earlier and I, I immediately thought that I I like that idea. Uh, I I don't, I mean, I don't know if I think yes or no on it, but, but Mm -hmm. I, I love it. I think it's a cool idea. And it does remind me that during that conversation with Taylor, that's one of the few times that I really feel like we're talking to Fortuna rather than Contessa. Like, like yeah. clearly the path is not um, dictating the content of what she's saying in that conversation. Yeah. Um, although it is dictating the mouth sounds she's making, I think. But yeah. And, and um, I wonder, I wonder if like <laughs> the mouth sounds, <laughs> I wonder if there's like, she starts off this book, um, she starts off this book with this idea of I'm not going to use my power anymore because I think that the, the, the way that human, the way that humanity, the way that people are successful going forward is if they come forward on their, come together on their own. 
right? That, that, that this is something that humanity has to do. This is a decision they have to make on their own. And my interference in it is just going to fuck it up. And that's why we see a Contessa who's kind of turned off her power and like gone off on her own. And then the shards start doing their thing. And I wonder if this is going to be, Oh, with these things around, the only way this happens is if shard manity and humanity find a way to come together in a natural way. And that, that ends up being her main focus once she's reactivated um, and going forward. I don't know. I don't know. It's just an interesting theory. Yeah. Good, good. I mean, good place to kind of lay that out as we end arc 18, begin arc 19. What? Is that true? No, at 17, 18. End arc 17, begin arc 18. That's what I said, everyone. Um, So, yeah, that wraps it up for the first chapter of arc, whatever it was I just said. 18. It's radiation. Radiation. Um, The question from last week was, have you ever change the way you lived your life because of a story and in what ways uh matt this is like my favorite discussion question i loved the answers to this one this is so great you guys like just listening to people talk about the stories they love and the ways they've affected them it's made me all warm inside yeah i mean i i mean this is kind of why i i love stories anyway like it really is because they have the capability to do this kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. let's get into these, Scott. So we're going to spend some time on this question. You yes. can always tell who's pulled the answers by whether they're paraphrased or not, or whether someone just pulled them copy paste full cloth from Reddit. Uh, that is me. That's what I do. But so. Scott, you, you did that because you wanted to preserve everyone's beautiful language. Yeah, right? totally. Yeah. It's not because I, I was running out of time and... <laughs> <laughs> all right so from nugget blaster 69 i'm not sure i'd say the entire story changed the way i lived my life but i definitely say that daenerys targaryen from game of thrones was a fictional character that had a big impact on me while i'm not an exiled princess whose father incited a rebellion i feel like i could really relate to who she was at her core my father is also an insane man who ruined my childhood and, and imparted trauma on me that still impacts me as an adult like daenerys i moved to a foreign country as a child and my only companion was a brother who hated me I could also really identify with the pressure she felt to represent her family. That's something that's really prominent in the Italian-American community as well. So I felt that I could relate uh, with some of the things she went through. But the biggest aspect of her personality that, that I identified with was being a shy and quiet child who had no control over her life. So to me, Daenerys was an example of a woman who wasn't born strong but became that way through her own determination she also inspired me as someone who could overcome the deeds of her father to make her own positive mark on the world. She helped solidify to me that I wasn't doomed to live my parents' lives just because I was related to them. Of course, that all went to shit, which I'm not bitter about at all. <laughs> but her transition from powerless child to an empowered woman is something that really spoke to and encouraged me. I really like that. Um, Nugget Blaster, we can hope that Daenerys' arc in the books is handled just a little bit better. Yeah, a little, little bit more nuance, perhaps. It might perhaps. E- it might end in the same place, but uh, a little bit better. Yeah. yeah. All right, Martian Maneater says, Once Upon a Marigold, which is a silly and sweet book that is lighthearted and sincere, the protagonist watches from across the river as the wicked queen bullies her daughters and observes how unhappy and isolated everyone at the palace seems he decides that if he was the one in charge of the kingdom he'd mandate that everyone got at least three hugs per day so that no one would ever have to feel lonely or invisible 
And it stuck with me. I'm empathetic as hell, but I also have very different emotional needs than the people around me. When I see a friend or stranger suffering, I often hear the phrase three hugs per day echoing around my head. I'm not compelled to hug people willy nilly, but it does remind me to be kind. Three hugs per day reminds me to take a second and identify what might be helpful or reassuring to that person, which sometimes involves asking them directly instead of jumping in with what might be helpful to me. Um, That's wonderful. I think that's that's I mean, like this is this is stories, man. This is what stories do. I think that's great. I'm so happy that that story had that effect on you. I've never read that before, but I love that so much. Yeah, me too. I almost wish that I had encountered something similar uh, when I was younger because I feel like it's taken me like into my old a- ancient age to get to <laughs> a point where, where where I'm able to kind of like automatically go to a place of offering empathy rather than just like being in my own head all the time. Gosh, so, yeah, I would have been such a better person for sure. Yeah, yeah, me too. Funderfulness says the Redwall series, which I started reading when I was a kid, is a bunch of books that spans generations of brave, adventurous woodland animals, all of whom are linked by a timeless by timeless places like Redwall Abbey or the mountain fortress of the Badger Lords Salamandistron. I was a kid who absorbed scientific stuff like a sponge, but I never really appreciated the immensity, richness, and importance of history until I read that series. This, of course, brought about my love of big, long epic sagas, parahumans among them. I would like to point out that uh, Salamandistron was not written by Funderfulness, but Matt added it because we are two nerds that love the Redwall books. <laughs> yes. Yes, I love Redwall. Um, I read like like almost all of them, I think. I really love those books. I stopped. I, I aged out of them. Um, but I, I have the first one still, and I go back and read it every once in a while. I love those books, too. This was really the first like fantasy ster- series that I really like read. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved them so much. They're, they're so great. Yeah. Brian yeah. Jacques. I loved them. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Uh, next up we have peep two nine five who has the most delightful story ever Matt. They say, while this might not be in the spirit of a qu- the question, I'm dating my girlfriend, Alex, because of a tabletop RPG story, which is adorable. Yeah. As a way of keeping touch with my old college buddies, we all decided to start an RPG campaign fate system magic girl setting after a few sessions i noticed that my character and alex's character acted as good foils for each other and would help balance out their worst tendencies i approached her and the gm outside of the session and asked if alex would be comfortable exploring a romantic subplot between our two characters in the game she was excited about it but she worried a little bit about portraying a a crush between two girls because she wasn't gay herself i assured her that things were fine and as long as everyone felt comfortable and things straight stayed strictly magic girl show pg with yuri undertones everything was fine and then they fell in love. <laughs> it's adorable. Like that, that she kind of realized that the reason she, this relationship felt a little bit different from all her real life relationships was specific because of the girl that she was, uh, role playing it with. And it's just this adorable story. And I love it. I love it so much. Thank you so much for sharing peep. Uh, that's a great. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, the, the question definitely wasn't explicitly about, um, um, RPGs or, or, I guess they're just called tabletop RPGs, yeah. But but that's a mode of storytelling. That's a mode of interactive storytelling. And uh, and I love I love tabletop RPGs. Yeah. I think they're really powerful. So absolutely, really cool story. Uh, das Nouveau, ex Das Nouveau, cha- uh, said, "Worm changed my sleep schedule. <laughs> I got up an hour earlier to read the chapter before work." And since Worm, I have read no book in my native language because they ain't good. And reading a certain book series we are waiting to hear the Doof production about made me realize that I have forgotten the face of my father. 
and I am fine this way. They're talking about they're talking <laughs> about Dark Tower. I, I think I picked that up, but yes, yes. I'm so excited. I am excited because you're excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up we have the White Squirrel who says, I could probably name a few stories that had a strong emotional impact, but in all honesty, I think the biggest effect on me was not as a reader, but as a writer. Specifically, I think the story that had the most visible effect on my life was my Harry Potter fanfic, The Arithmancer. Did I say that right? I think it's... Arithmancer. Arithmancer, yeah. I used the story to work through a lot of my own problems and frustrations through Hermione, including being diagnosed with ADHD and viewing it through a lens... And viewing it through that lens made it easier both to take my own advice and to seek help for it. Uh, that's wonderful. I think our own illustrious writer, Wild Bo, has said that he uses his own writing to kind of work through stuff. It's very therapeutic for him. So I think creating stories can be just as impactful on you uh, as uh, consuming them. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, I Like probably the longest thing I ever wrote was m- sort of me doing therapy on myself. Like that's what it ended up being. That's not what it was intended to be. But then I looked over <laughs> it and I was like, holy shit, this has all my issues in it. <laughs> and no one can ever see this. Although Scott's actually probably read it. But anyway. Uh, um, yeah, I, I think I know what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> good, good. You don't remember. <laughs> um, uh, Death of the Artist says, I am a very bad student of science. It does not come naturally to me and it has never come naturally to me. Oftentimes as a kid, I hated science and mathematics above all my other subjects in school. So why, you may ask, am I close to graduating with a degree in optics with a minor in mathematics and hoping to pursue a PhD in quantum mechanics and solid state physics right now? The first reason is because I hate myself and want to do something that I'm awful at. (laughs) What fun is going into a career in a field I'm good at now and getting bored in a decade, followed shortly by hanging myself in my mid-30s? The second reason why I'm pursuing the career track is because of the Feynman lectures on physics. I know at least one other person who has this story. That that was... That was me, Matt. Um, I found the first lectures when I was in my sophomore year of high school. I did not understand most of it, and I fervently didn't want to read it, but I really needed a quotation for a paper. So I started to read and read and read, and then I went back to the beginning and plowed through the majority of the lectures in a single sitting. Despite my not understanding the vast majority of the content, Feynman is so engaging and such a good teacher that I had just absorbed his material like a sponge. I know that you asked for stories that have changed people, and that's precisely what makes these lectures so consumable, the narrative. A leads into B leads into C until you've gone from talking about the philosophical meaning of truth to talking about semiconductors, spin, and the the time-dependent Schrodinger equation. Every step of the way, you are inundated with Feynman's personal enthusiasm on the subject until you really start to appreciate the beauty he's talking about when he starts waxing poetic about Euler's formula being an amazing jewel when he takes a lecture to explore it for a little more than sheer intellectual pleasure. Even if you know nothing about physics, even if you hate science in general, give it a shot. It might just suck you in or give you a new perspective on the simple pleasures of a field you previously closed yourself off to. Um, Yeah, Feynman was very special. Feynman was an, was amazing. You can still watch some videos of him giving giving lectures on YouTube. Actually, it's 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 pretty amazing because um, he can break something down that's that's I mean pretty pretty esoteric in a way where you're just like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> Why was that ever complicated to me? Yeah, that's cool. I, so. I, Death of the Artist does give the link to those in the the thread. So cool. if you just heard Matt read that and said, I want to check that out. You can find it at uh, Death of the Artist's link, or you can probably just Google it, but whichever is easier. Yep. Hero of Old Iron says two stories come to mind, Pact 
Pact and Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archives. Back in the day when Pact was being written, I wasn't really in a great place mentally or emotionally. Trying to keep up with stuff at college completely ground me down, which made it incredibly easy to relate to Blake since the entire universe was conspiring to make him miserable. There was a solid three-month period where I just flat out gave up and spent all my time in my room doing nothing, really. Underground, undergoing that kind of isolation and hopelessness for that long is easily the most dangerous thing I've ever experienced. I tied a lot of myself to hoping for some kind of peaceful resolution for Blake, which, in retrospect, was clearly a pretty dumb move, considering the fact that he's the kind of character who literally can't stop fighting everyone. But somehow, it worked out, and having new chapters to look forward to got me through to the time that I eventually moved home, which is when I started reading Stormlight. I'm guessing you guys will eventually be doing a book club on the series, since everyone loves some good old Brando Sando, so I won't spoil anything. Suffice it to say, one of the main characters suffers from severe depression, and the oath from the summary and the moments where it comes up have stuck with me. My depression ended up being strictly secondary effect of ADHD, but that oath still gets me choked up years later and informs most of my broad life goals. That's that, awesome. Yeah, I've, I've not read story. So spoilers for the rest of this conversation, but Stormlight Archives is going to come up twice more. Um, so, hey, I think we got to read those. Yeah, I mean, we. I think we will. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I love this because, I mean, for, for, in, for both of them, right? Like, I, I can imagine Pact being, um, I, I don't want to say any sp- Pact spoilers, but it seems like something that would resonate incredibly well with someone going through that exact kind of crisis. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Um, I think it's interesting so much of these answers. And I think because it's this fundamental truism that like sometimes the right story hits you at just the right time of your life. Right. mm -hmm. It's just like, and and there's no planning for it. It just happens. Um, And those are normally the stories that impact us the most. I mean, like I have stuff in my life that, this certain movie or this certain book or just hit me right when I needed it to. And it totally just reoriented my outlook on everything. Um, and that's, it's incredible. It really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I think that's why I didn't read any ton of French books for several years. Cause one of them just like destroyed me. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, glad you didn't fall through the cracks here of old iron. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm glad to hear you're doing great. Next post from coinage. So I, as a nearly 30-year-old man, am going to rant about the Lizzie McGuire movie for a minute. (laughs) For those not familiar, it's a high school coming-of-age style drama of a prototypical girl, Lizzie, and her friend Gordo. Gordo is a boy, but not her boyfriend. This will be important later. Frankly, the show was rather mundane to me, but a few things stand out. Lizzie was a rather normal protagonist, presumably meant to be easily relatable to a teenage girl. I was not a teenage girl, so I related closer to Gordo. Gordo was weird. The show repeatedly called him out for being weird. His idiosyncrasies uh, were often a comedic element. I don't recall him being popular at all. Lizzie was one of his few friends. A recurring theme of the show was the relationship between Gordo and Lizzie. I recall the show making it rather clear Gordo liked her and only saw him as a friend. Um, the, the answer, it's a pretty long post actually, but it goes on to basically say that they eventually there's like another movie or something. And then turns out that her and Gordo get together and the show is like implying that it was good that, uh, he stuck it out and just kind of considered to be a low key nagging presence in her life because then eventually she gave in and loved him because that's how love works. And that this was actually a negative influence on, on the poster because, that is not, in fact, how love works. Right. I loved that Coinage took this question and like turned it 
in a different way, right? I mean, like, I think when we thought of this question, it was like, how has it positively impacted you? But yes, it is absolutely true that the media we consume uh, can negatively impact us in certain ways. And I do think it is very true that the whole nice guy phenomena is at very least supported by a lot of the media we consume. This idea, there's very much this idea as like the, the nerdy, unpopular kid that if you just, if you just, if you're just there, she'll love you. Um, uh-huh. I, I never watched a Lizzie McGuire movie, but I know plenty of other stories that work in this exact same way. Yeah. So totally agree with this. Um, yeah. It, I mean, it kind of reminds me of how, like I started reading wheel of time when I was like 14 and, uh, I got some real weird ideas about how relationships work from those books, which I had to <laughs> gradually scour out of my mind. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like a lot about those books, but the, the gender politics are not the best. I have only read the first five, and I can tell you that I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next up, we have Hobo Demon, who says, Worm changed my life in a very noticeable ways, and the associated We've Got Worm podcast got me into listening to podcasts. Aw, thanks. Yeah. First, just the then Daily Planet, then things sort of expanded from there, like a slime mold spreading to adjacent oatmeal flakes until it constructs a map of Tokyo to the subway system as I looked into podcasts plugged on other podcasts. Now I've got 140 podcasts on my podcatcher, 42 of which I'm caught up with, at least half of which update weekly and a couple daily. And keeping caught up with these means I'm very slowly working through my backlog of high value, long running podcasts, like Rationally Speaking, My Brother, My Brother and Me, Very Bad Wizards, etc. That's a lot of content that if it weren't for worm existing and being so well written that it had a podcast would have been replaced in my day-to-day as a truck driver working 12 to 14 hour shifts packed with podcasts at 1.4 times speed with like 50 remixes of Porter Robinson's Unison on shuffle for eternity in a data torture chamber on wheels like some kind of hair shirt because I'm weird like that (laughs) holy shit that was hilarious uh it is hilarious also like (laughs) do you do you remember when you used to listen to music in the car because I don't Although clearly that was most of my life. I said, da- I meant dataists. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, I don't listen to music anymore. I don't, f- I I don't mean, fucking have time for music. Are you kidding me? Uh, exactly. Like, like why? Why would you listen to music yeah. ever? <laughs> okay, I'm joking. Um, yeah. They, no, also, I, I, they also mentioned uh, a, a book called uh, Fall of Giants by Ken Follett um, that uh, has, they say, is similar to Worm. Okay. And that they make you empathize with characters that you expect to consider malicious given the genre and the setting, mm. um, which is cool. cool. Yeah. I mean, everybody starts their podcast journey somewhere and I'm pleased that we were able to introduce you into the cult. Yeah. That, that is an honor to hear that. Um, welcome to podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Niall Supernum says definitely the webcomic questionable content by Jeff Jacques. Um, I assume that's how that's pronounced. I got into I got into it in late high school, and as a pretty introverted and nerdy kid, it provided me with some real positive role models who weren't sci-fi fantasy protagonists. The characters are just ordinary people trying to be decent to each other. They occasionally fail and then apologize and then learn and grow. I strongly identified with one character in particular, ostensibly the main character, Martin. He grows quite a bit, as does the comic's author, between the start of the comic and the up-to-date point circa 2009 when I caught up. I credit his arc and the comic in general with helping me let go of a lot of toxic masculinity and to become a better communicator in relationships. Also, I'm not sure how much of the of uh, correlation is causation, but I watched the entirety of The West Wing and Parks and Rec over the same rough period of months when I decided to switch careers from software engineering to law slash public interest. Make of that what you will. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. 
cool. Um, I've never heard of that comic. I've never heard of that either, but I'm I'm very glad it had that effect on you. Yeah, I mean, the idea of growing with a creator over time, I think, is is pretty cool. I think it gives you some insight into like how people change, which can give you insight into yourself. That's yeah. more more about the creator than it is about the art. But I guess the two are intertwined in really interesting ways. Absolutely, absolutely. Cool. Uh, next up, we have Tenky Forecast, who says, besides weather, one of my passions is history. I find history to be engaging, enlightening, and life-changing in, in what you can learn about the world, your culture, and yourself from the study of the past. However, that can lead into a tendency to obsess over the past, especially when you add a depression to the mix. Enter Cowboy Bebop. This one did not go where I thought it was going to go. A show about three to four individuals with very complicated or complete lack of relationships with their past. One character runs from the past, another pretends the past doesn't matter, and another obsesses over the past. All three are approaching their history from an unhealthy perspective, a perspective that is inherently self-destructive. Only one character kind of learns from their mistakes, while the other two damages all the relationships. One character's obsession with the past leads to one of the most famous endings in anime history. It's an ending that absolutely did not need to happen. At any point, the characters could have walked away and learned. That's the tragedy of it all. Um, yep, I I keep I feel like I'm going to have to watch Cowboy Bebop at some point. I feel like I have watched it. Like, oh. I remember it, but I don't remember it. I remember watching it because Michael. Yeah, but, he, didn't, he didn't make me watch it. That's weird. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Maybe that was before you. I, I when mean, did Cowboy I, Bebop come out? I don't know. It must have been before me, though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Anti-Chris says, My initial response to this question was that some have made me try, but there are always some long-term backsliding which disqualified them from being the answer. But then I realized that nobody's life is a sprint to the finish line. Even if a work doesn't lead me to permanent sweeping changes that are satisfyingly dramatic, that doesn't mean they haven't changed me or the way I live. Worm taught me to be more empathetic, even if I still get curmudgeonly. Life is Strange taught me to be more decisive and in the moment, even if I sometimes still need to check out a bit. The Stormlight Archives taught me to not let the past get in the way of the future, even if I still hold my grudges. Countless works have had a small positive change, just like every journey is ultimately made up of countless small steps. I I like this answer a lot because I feel like I can relate to that. Like, like... There's been a lot of books actually that have affected me in, in small ways that don't end up being like permanent turn the knob all the way in one direction changes. Yeah, sure. Um, but uh, kind of still influence me going forward. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the honest truth of this question is that everything you read changes you in, in some small, minute way, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I like sure. that answer a lot too. Tassarwat says, maybe not the way this, this was intended, but Ward in particular has had a strong impact on my life. This past year has been a challenge, to say the least. I've been dealing with disability, mental health problems related and unrelated to that, and the consequence, consequential inability to work or study for long for the first time in my life. It has meant reevaluating what my life is about, and there have also been long periods of drifting and aimlessness, which a lot of people without regular sleep schedule find. Combine that with depression that can make it hard to get out of bed, sleep disorders that make it hard to get out of bed, and oftentimes I've struggled to know what day of the week it was, what time it is, or anything that could be immediately determined by how light it was outside. Ward provided some some of that structure. Two releases a week on known days gave and gives me something concrete to look forward to that didn't require anything of me. We've got Ward, Ward offered a third fixed point of that week, and joining the Discord meant that I could use the anticipation of chapter releases to help ground me as well. It's something that I really needed to keep me connected to the world outside my head. Uh, that thank you so much for sharing, Sarwat. I'm glad. Like this is 
just like the, the structural importance of what regular entertainment in your life can be, I think is absolutely really powerful. And sometimes you just need to focus on those things, um, to get you through the hard times in your life. So I, I, I'm sorry to hear that you're having a rough time right now, but I'm really glad that the story has helped you even in that, that way of just being there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's very moving to hear. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So thanks for your remarks there. Yeah. Uh, Beard of Valor says Ender's Game and Dune are essentially coming of age tales with hyper competent, morally challenged, not politely amoral, but challenged in their convictions, protagonists, where the biggest action is in their heads. These inspired me to think more about how I think and how I want to think. Self-control, training my own reactions and attitudes, constructive introspection. Um, yes, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> For a second there, I was like, did Matt answer? Is, is Beard of Valor yeah. Matt? Right. Yeah. I mean, Dune especially I just hit me in a way where I, I like honestly shaped who I am as a person in a fundamental and deep way. Um, I, I think I think Blindsight was actually similar in the in the specific sense that it like shifted how I think of my own mind, uh, similar to the way that Dune kind of shifts how you think of, about who and what you are. Sure, sure. Uh, in, in a permanent way. So. Yeah. All right, next up we have Wanson, who says, Pretty much every book whose characters I've sympathized with have changed me in ways small and large. I found more role models in libraries than in real life. The earliest I can remember was a children's book about Lurchie, an advertisement cartoon for a shoe manufacturer. He and his friends go around having adventures and solving mysteries. The thing is, he's a salamander, and his friends are also animals. Them being animals played a large role in me becoming a vegetarian at a rather young age of eight. That's really cool. And I agree with the first part of Wanson's statement. That's kind of what I said earlier that like every book does this. Um, mm-hmm. the, the finding r- more role models in libraries than real life, I think is, is very true to a lot of people too. I think it's kind of true to me. I mean, not that I didn't have role models in my real life, but I was just such an avid reader as a kid that like the, the characters that I read about really defined my understanding and viewpoint on, mm-hmm. on how I approached the world. So this is a question f- for you. Me? Yeah, well, just like for yes. So like when I was a kid, I I would be like surely like I feel lost and and adrift in the world at times, but surely adults have figured it all out. I will read books and the adults will have written their discoveries about how to live well and how to be happy into the books. <laughs> and it took me like a, many years to realize like oh most adults have still not figured these things out. Um, although some books definitely contain what, what I would call wisdom, uh, which is sort of the instruction manual for how to live well. But um, I, I t- tended to read like fantasy books, which are mostly not that. So anyway, I just thought that I guess to change it into a question, did you did you ever read with the intent of like, I got to figure out what the fuck is going on? And, and maybe maybe book authors have, have kind of put that in the books. I don't know if I would ever like consciously like had that thought, but I mean, certainly reading was a, a method of understanding what was going on. Okay. Yeah. Cause the world is this giant unknowable place when you're a little kid and books seem to explain it in a way that you can digest. So, okay, cool. Uh, askew says the book that I think had the biggest impact on my life was the way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. There we go. We got to read these books. <laughs> we do putting the fact that, the, that it putting aside the fact that it, it is an amazing piece of fiction. The aspect of this book that really changed my life was the story of Kaladin without getting too spoilery. Mental health issues have a lot to do with what drives the story. 
Kaladin in particular struggles with what appears to be a form of depression. I read um, The Way of Kings in early high school and I was able to identify with him so well that it helped me realize that depression was a big problem in my own life and eventually inspired me to get help and begin to move past it. For me, the most important aspect of this book and the Stormlight archives in general is that the characters are able to have hope however dire their situation becomes. The process of losing hope and motivation but finding a way back was so inspiring. Cool. Gosh, I gotta read these books. I know. I mean, they sound pretty powerful. Yeah. I think someone tweeted us right before I started about what we talked about, the like the the moment at the end of 17.y that I had, that that everything coming together epiphany moment. They were like, uh-huh. that happens in every book in the series. You must read it right now. I was like, Jesus, I feel like I feel like Brandon Sanderson is paying people to, <laughs> to get me to read these books. Um yeah. I think we need to yeah, we'll 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 put them in the rotation for the book club. I don't think anyone submitted them as a a potential pick. That's the problem. Yeah, you got to do that, everybody. Yeah. You, right. I'm talking to you. Yeah. Uh we have original bubs here that says 400 or so pages into Infinite Jest, there's a conversation between two very minor characters, Lyle and Lamont Chu, about Lamont's aspirations to become a nationally raked ranked tennis player lamont argues that since he and almost everyone and and almost everyone knows wants to be wants so much to be the best at tennis that must mean that actually being the best must be fantastic he thinks that because he's envious of the best player that must mean that the best player is that much more happy for it lyle responds by telling him that he's incorrect a few choice quotes from lyle in the response include you have been snared by the delusion that envy has a reciprocal you burn with hunger for food that does not exist and fame is not an exit for from any cage it might be a rather simple idea that the wanting of something doesn't always correlate with the actual value of it however to a college-age reader who is pretty obsessed with next steps and thinking about how they could achieve intellectual success the question of the goal really had an impact it got me to step back and actually think about what i think a good life for me is and not just aim for the one that sounds the most impressive wow yeah that's amazing uh that's really like that's such a key point in your life too to to come to that realization uh, uh yeah yeah uh, uh, I kind of yeah. wish I had come to that realization about that point in my life. Oh uh, uh, yeah, I was gonna say the same thing. I wish <laughs> I wish I had read uh, 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 "Envy Does Not Have a Reciprocal" when I was like, I don't know, eighteen. That yeah. would have changed a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, final answer from Classic Todd. Ah, Classic Todd. Yeah, it's classic. Um, the first book I've ever read was "It" by Stephen King, <gasps> and I was younger than the kids in the story. As I grew older and periodically reread the book, how I experienced the story would change because I was changed, but it didn't change me. For me, the experience of a story is one of introspective discovery. The closest closest example I can think of for being changed in some way is how the story of Saul Weintraub in Hyperion changed how I interpret the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. But I don't really consider that a change. It hasn't affected how I live my life, just my perspective on something. Learning something new, seeing something in a new light, how do I weigh that change against the change brought on by the birth or the death of someone I love? I think that is change, though. Uh, giving yourself a new perspective might not directly inform conscious actions, but it certainly informs how you approach situations. So I do think that is a change. Yeah. I, I mean, every like you said earlier, like every almost everything you encounter changes you in a small way. And I think certainly... Seeing and I mean, who was it who said, I don't know, I'm going to mess it up because I don't actually remember the quote, but just like the idea is that a story is an empathy machine and puts you in other people's minds and, and situations. 
he, Roger Ebert. He technically yeah. said movies are movies, yeah. Machines, but, but but stories, I mean, stories. I mean, yeah. I think movies are particularly good at it, but stories in general are are. I mean, stories are one of our modes as the human animal for conveying information and lessons. So yep, yep. Also, uh, Todd, I totally agree with you about it. Um, I read that book over the summer, and I had this crazy realization that this is the first time I'm reading it, and I was uh, I am the age that Stephen King was when he wrote it. Um, or started working on it and that really threw me for a loop because I think the book the, the meaning of the book shifts and changes as you grow older um, because it's a book about childhood and and losing your childhood and trying to recapture it and um, it's one of those books that works perfectly for that just to to, to dip into again as you age um, love it I love it cool I love it I haven't read it yet but I'm sure I will at some point mm-hmm all right. So we spent a lot of time on this this week, Matt. <laughs> we spent a lot of time on your questions. And I think this it was because it was a really personal question with a lot of very personal answers. And we wanted to make sure everyone that took the time to share that personal stuff with us got uh, got recognized for that. So thank you, everyone, for sharing some really, you know, intimate, important moments of yourself with us. I, I really do appreciate that. Yeah, um, that was that was beautiful. I'm I'm actually glad that you pulled out everyone's answers, Scott, and not mm-hmm. just paraphrase them because some of those are pretty powerful. Yeah, um, yeah. It's th- thanks for sharing, everybody. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I I would talk about how Worm has changed my life, but like I feel like you just if you've listened to the podcast up to this point, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the fun things about the show is I think you can see, you can literally see by tracking. Uh, how we talk about this book, the ways in which this, these books have changed us. Yeah. Because I am definitely not the same person who had the opinions I had at the start of worm that I am right now. Yeah, absolutely not reading it and studying it and talking about it have all been things that cause these things to sink into me in, in ways I don't think they would have if I just read it. Um, yeah. And it's been huge. Uh, I don't even know if I am aware of all the ways in which it has, but, um, I am very appreciative for that. It is so, the favorite thing I have about what we do. Absolutely. Yeah. And so thank all of you for like allowing me to do that and go yeah. through that process because it's awesome. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy doing it. Mm-hmm. All right. Next week's discussion question is, who's your favorite jerk bag parahumans character? <laughs> Interpret that any way you will. I like how we have a very like emotional, powerful question here. And now we're like, who's the Who's your favorite jackass in the yeah. Parahumans universe? Yeah. I don't want to give too much guidance on the question, but like, but like, not like horrible monster, just, you know, kind of a dick, you yeah. know? Yeah. I think you know what I mean. All right. Yeah. That's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us with any comments at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is always Scott at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at Mordina Jerkbag. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. If, <laughs> if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find all the other shows we do at our website, doofmedia.com. That's where you will find our book club, which is meeting this weekend. Speaking of good old Brando Santo, we are meeting on Saturday the 23rd at 9.30 p.m. to talk about 
the hero of ages, the final book in the Mistborn trilogy. Um, Matt and I have really enjoyed talking about these books and I'm very excited to wrap up this series. So come hang out with us on Saturday night. Uh, it'll be live on our YouTube page. Um, yeah. And if you miss it, you can always see it afterwards because it saves those things. But But, I mean, we know that all of you have read this book based on the answers that you keep giving the discussion questions. So just (laughs) come hang out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. So if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash doof media. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you access to tons of great bonuses like the ability to vote in our fan art and costume contests uh, hangout sessions uh uh we recently did a <laughs> tabletop rpg of the t- tingleverse the chuck tingleverse um for our our patron hangout session i was a bad boy unicorn named pranston i was a raptor wizard i believe you were very unsure of yourself though yeah. mr raptor wizard my name was Millhouse Shagger, um, <laughs> and you can you can go back and listen to that and watch it um, if you even if you join now, and mm-hmm. then you'll be able to join us for future ones. Yep. Um, and of course, there's the excellent Discord chat where uh, we just argue all day. Um, and as always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon at Patreon.com/Wildbo and donate to him as well. This is his world. We are just playing in it. And this week, special thanks to new patrons: Bidoof's Jonas B. Miss Nash, Jeff B, Dominic T, and Joshua S. New Doof Trooper, Stellhex. New Doof Warrior, Mark Andre M. And new Supreme Leader Doof Hero of Old Iron. Welcome, Gosh, everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks for allowing us to continue doing this thing that we that we do. Um, we really really appreciate y'all. Yeah, today the, the day we're recording this is like hashtag Thank You Patrons Day or something that Patreon put on. Um, but you know what? Every day it is thank you, Patrons Day. Uh, we are so incredibly thankful. Always, always. It's Matt. This is what we do. It's like yeah. it's so. I we love doing this so so much, and we're so thankful that you guys like it enough to help us to to help sure we keep doing this. So guys, God, hashtag thank you, Patrons. Yeah. Day. Yeah. Sincerely, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Not just because Patreon told us to. No, not because Patreon <laughs> emailed me two weeks ago telling me to prepare for this day, and I totally forgot until today because I'm bad. But thank you guys so, so, so much. Yeah, yeah. And of course, for those of you that cannot afford to donate, that is absolutely fine. We love you guys just as much. Uh, just by listening to the show, just by downloading it, you help us. You can help us by sharing it with your friends. I mean, you should be sharing this book with your friends, so you can share the show along with it. Um or you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Um, any of these ways help new people find our show. Thank you guys so much for doing that. Yeah, and that's all we have for you this week. Next week, we will continue to suffer from ARC-18 radiation. It's like Chernobyl, but with capes. It's good. It's good.